Do you feel like you're the only young person who cares about your Catholic faith? Do you look around at mass and only see silver foxes? We're Jake and Kathy, a young adult married couple, and we're here to tell you, you're not alone. That's why it's time to get Truth Pops. You're going to get a podcast designed specifically for you, a young adult Catholic in a pop culture world. The countdown is on for Truth Pop. We'll connect Christ into culture. Live from a bunker in the heart of the Ozarks, we are Sif Pop, and Sif Pop has done this. It's Sif Pop. Welcome to Sif Pop Weekly, streaming live most weekends are available to download later in your podcast feed. Unless, of course, you're a patron. Your patrons get perks. <laughs> patrons get those perks. Batman. I'm your host, Aaron Dicer, and he has no fear. It's Andrew Ormsby, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I wish that were true. Ahoy! <laughs> Each week, we'll chat about movies, television, whatever else from the pop culture universe is on our minds. And please welcome our guest this week. We were talking about the hottest people on the planet, and naturally, his name came up. It's Jonathan Paula, ladies and gentlemen. I'm afraid you have me mistaken with somebody much more attractive, but great to be back, gentlemen. Uh, hey, you got that John Krasinski look going on right now. Yeah. I'll take that. He's a he's a handsome guy. Yes, he are is you. a handsome fellow. And he's hometown. You. He's from uh, my neck of the woods up in Boston. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. I do want to let our audio-only listeners know that there was a placard before uh, the video podcast. <laughs> that was so good. It was so good. <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant! That is uh, that is our graphics uh, graphics guy Drew throwing that in. Uh, that said, Sif Pop podcast is presented in four by three format to preserve the original integrity. Uh, so yeah, uh, fun stuff, fun stuff. Um, yeah, we're talking about Snyder Cut, guys. This week, yeah, we are. Uh, it is out and available. All four hours of it. All of us uh, watched all four hours, plus some of the other material, doing some rewatches. I saw that going on on Letterboxd. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I rewatched the whole Snyderverse this week. Um, I had did a busy I. week at work. So I was, it was just, yeah. I had to get up at like 6 a.m. every day. So I was staying up till 11 watching these three, three and a half hour movies. Yeah. There's only one I didn't Gave watch. Gave me some homework this week. <laughs> I didn't rewatch Suicide Squad. That's the only one I didn't watch. Did he direct that? Oh, I, I'm no, talking about, was... I thought we were talking like the entire DCEU. No, I oh, just no. did the one. I, yeah, oh. I just did Snyder's movies just to kind of oh. recontextualize. I did and, I had, and I had rewatched the, the Wonder Woman films back in December when 84 came out. So I was right. familiar with those. I, I want to go back and re- rewatch Aquaman soon though. Um, yeah. Especially having just seen both versions of Justice League, I'm like, yeah, okay, this this kind of originally set up Aquaman. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So are we going to start with that? Or are we going to? We, we, we will. We will get stuff? there. Uh, I yeah. I also want to mention we'll be talking about Boss Level, the uh, movie on Hulu came out a couple weeks ago, and uh, we wanted to to chat about it. As well as, of course, the regular stuff. For our Best Ever Challenge this week, we're doing Best Ever Director's Cut, which was an interesting one for me to try to kind of process and, and think through, and we'll talk more about that as as we get there. Um, and then, of course, we'll have buried treasure uh, and all that as well. Um, but yeah, we got lots to talk about, so we don't need to dilly-dally around. Let's get into it, and let's talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League. I had a dream. Almost like a premonition. There's an attack coming. My lord. 
this world will fall. I need warriors. I'm building an alliance to defend ourselves. How do you know your team's strong enough? If you can't bring down the charging bull, then don't wave the red cape at it. Fueled by his restored faith in humanity and inspired by Superman's selfless act, Bruce Wayne enlists newfound ally Diana Prince to face an even greater threat. Together, Batman and Wonder Woman work quickly to recruit a team to stand against this newly awakened enemy. Despite the formation of an unprecedented league of heroes, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Cyborg, and The Flash, it may be too late to save the planet from an assault of catastrophic proportions. Uh, You missed it. You missed it apocalyptic proportions should have gone with uh. listen i'm just i'm just reading the actual release from the studio that's i don't oh, write I those you. i don't mean to let you down if, if you thought i took time time well, to write those I, that is a control on. v control c <laughs> like, come on warner brothers you dropped the ball on that one uh you know there's not a lot that i could say about the snyder cut that hasn't been said over the last couple years. It is one of those things where uh, people have different perspectives on it, but here is mine, um, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the movie. But basically, the movie comes out, Justice League comes out. Uh, it is just has all sorts of uh, issues behind the scenes. Uh, Zack Snyder with Family Tragedy steps away from the film. Joss Whedon finishes it up. The movie comes out. You can tell it is two directors, you know, battling against each other in many ways. Uh, it is a mess in other ways. The fans say, "I want to see Zack Snyder's version." There's online bullying that happens, but then there's also online charity giving that happens from the movement. And eventually, HBO says, "You know what?" Or not HBO. I should say Warner says, "You know what? I bet we could really pump up our HBO Max if maybe we, you know, put it over there and and did his whole Snyder cut thing." So they announce it actually is coming out. They give him the money to, quote-unquote, finish the film. Uh, it is now four hours long in a completely different movie, and but still with the same people, and now with Zack Snyder's vision intact. So what did you guys think? Did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay? And we will start with Andrew. What did you think? I really liked it. But I know I'm drinking Kool-Aid on this one, so I really <laughs> liked it. Uh, Jonathan, where'd you land? Uh, immediately after I finished, I wanted to say that I loved it. Ooh. But I know it can't be that good. <laughs> um, like, I intellectually, I'm like, this, mm, that's not right. But gosh darn it, this movie was, was really good. And I think watching immediately after the theatrical version kind of uh, spoiled the water a bit because, like, coming Anything off of... Good. <laughs> yeah, coming off of Whedon's version, which I still enjoyed, it's just, like, it's such a better execution on what should have been just a home run. I mean, this is, you know, DC's version of The Avengers, and that movie made a billion dollars, is critically acclaimed, and Justice League could and should have been much closer to that home run, and I think Zack Snyder's version of it uh, gets really close, and I have so many problems with it, but I still kind of loved it. If you had told me uh, a year ago that the Snyder Cut was real and they were going to re-release it on HBO Max, and all three of us would come out of it with positive opinions on it, 
I would yeah. have told you you were crazy. But sir, I was or fully prepared to hate this. You I really are thought I was not hate it. crazy. Uh, I also uh, enjoyed this movie. I am firmly in the liked it. Um, maybe maybe the least of the three of us uh, because I'm I'm not teetering on loved it. I I just I I really I, liked this movie. Um, and I think it sounds, Jonathan, like you're teetering on loved it as well. You th- you said you came out of it thinking you loved yeah, it. Yeah, no, I think I it, like low side of loved it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's I, one plot thing holding me back from saying I loved it. Other there's a than couple that, things, that, and we can get into that later. I don't sure. know if we are going to have a spoiler cast. I think for this, so. We'll yes, do we a are. Yes, we are. Okay. I don't care what yeah. the, either of you say. I will have a spoiler <laughs> cast. Okay. We're having well, a I, my, my only my only thing was going to be like people know the story, but I guess the beats that we have issues with are new elements that weren't in the theatrical well let's let's start here let's start here because this is a different piece of i'm going to say cinema than even though you know we watched it at home uh on a streaming service uh then i I can't think of an analogous example to what we're dealing with here there have been director's cuts there have been and we'll talk about some of them later in the show there have certainly been directors who have taken back projects and say hey here's what i wanted to do that has certainly happened. But I can't think of a time where it has been such a cultural movement in a way where it was something that the director then got to go back and remake the movie. This isn't recutting a movie. This is remaking a movie with a lot of the original pieces. Um, yeah. So does they actually had reshoots? They did yeah, new yeah, footage sure did. four years after the fact. Of course they did. Yeah, yeah. because it's, it's such a different movie. It's a completely different movie. Um, and you so, can tell. You can kind of tell the the scenes that were filmed uh, later because uh, there are scenes where you see Ben Affleck and you're like, oh yeah, he is nowhere near as big as he was. You know, whenever he originally <laughs> played Batman, he's a lot skinnier in some of these shots. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. No, yeah. you're right though. It, it, this is not simply a, a re-edit. This Topher so, Grace yeah. could not have created this. This right. is, and <laughs> and it's so fascinating to me that the, the entire project. To go back to what you started with, Aaron, is it's like a seventy million dollar bonus feature that was willed into like existence mm-hmm. by sheer fanboy entitlement. Right. And I wanted to just come out of this being like, this movie shouldn't exist. I don't even know if it deserves to exist because, like, they had their shot. They didn't do it. It's studio meddling, and this happens all the time. But so many people were so vocal for so long, and they got their wish. Whether or not these entitled fanboys deserved it is another thing. But, like, the movie works. I can't believe it came out. Fan persons. functionally. Fan persons. Fan persons. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. And and I, I really am so surprised by, like, every part of this that genuinely looks and sounds as great as it does. So uh, my question then is, knowing that there really isn't anything that has happened like this, at least that I can think of, how has that? How does that impact this product, both for good and for ill? I think for good, you have a situation where a filmmaker who did not get to, by the way, we, you know, we should say, as, as mentioned in the preamble, he didn't get to, to even finish the project. It's not like this was a finished project mm. of his that he's going back. He, you know, he left early. Um, so to be able to see a movie come out, see all the response to it and then get to redo it, that's, that gives you a little bit of, I mean, that's like the world's biggest test screening, right? Like this is the, truly, this is the real ability to see what fans reacted to, what they didn't, what they, so of course it's going to be 
but like that's a huge positive for this movie is it has the yeah. ability to have hindsight and yeah. that's not something every movie has well zach has never seen the theatrical cut of justice league yeah, he's been bragging about that. Yeah, <laughs> he's never seen it, which is like okay. That's, but certainly that's he's heard, you oh, know, yeah. like yeah. feedback. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. I'm like, not saying that he's you know been in a bunker for the last right what, five four years. No, like he's heard. Yeah, he's and just... I, I'm pretty sure, um, and I haven't read it confirmed anywhere, but I have to assume that Zach didn't look at a single second of Whedon's reshoots. I know. No, that there's one not. A, of the there's things... not a second of Whedon's shoots in the movie at all. Yeah, is my understanding. Right. Yeah, and and some of those things I kind of missed. But one of the big changes that Whedon made to the Snyder's original vision, and it's obvious watching the two cuts back to back, is the humor. Warner Brothers not only mandated like bring this monstrosity down to two hours, but it needs a lot more humor. It needs a lot more jokes and levity. And there's small little moments they went back and added. They reshot closer to the original production schedule, not four years later. And some of those I thought kind of worked. And there were moments in the theatrical I enjoyed that Snyder didn't keep in because he didn't even know they existed. Um, but I think that's one of my early negatives for this is that it's so serious. Like, it's almost operatic. And I get that that's Snyder's vision. It has been consistent with Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman. But it's so very dour sometimes. Well, this is this is Snyder though. Uh, in yeah. addition to rewatching Man of Steel and Batman uh, v Superman: Dawn of Justice, um, Ultimate Edition. I, uh, Ultimate Edition. <laughs> yes, you got to watch I, the Ultimate Edition. I did. That's, I did ultimate watch the Ultimate Edition. Yeah. Uh, I also rewatched Watchmen, and Watchmen is my least favorite Snyder movie. Uh, and it, it bumped up a couple notches because I, I think, and, and by the way, when I say bumped up, I hated that movie. So bumping it up didn't even put me in liked it. It just put me more in like, yeah, all right, I get it. But, um, but he is just the king of grayscale, dark, rainy, dourness. Like that's his thing. And if you're going to put him in charge of your expanded universe, you yeah. got to know that you have yeah. to know this is the movie he wants to make. Yeah. Right, like, yeah. So, um, so yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't surprise me that the movie turned out that way. Having said that, it's not without humor. There still is. Oh, Barry some Allen's humor. great. Yeah, yeah. There is still some humor in this. So it's 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 one of those things that it's just a different kind of humor, and it's much sparser. And I think you're you're right that some of that stuff is missed, but it's only missed because we know it's in the other one. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I think if you would watch this without the other one, um, I don't think I don't think you come away from this going, oh, there's no humor in it. Because I do think there are some funny moments. I think yeah. we come away from that going, yeah, but remember when Aquaman sat on the lasso? You know, like it, it's it's one of those things in in that we kind of have going on. So I, I think I think the greater point I was making is aside from some of those little jokes, um, I don't know that there's anything in the theatrical version I missed. Yeah. Yeah. Besides, like a couple little moments that I'm like, I I kind of like those quick little bits of levity. Um, they don't need to get rid of all of them, but I understand obviously if he never even looked at Whedon's reshoots, then he's not going to have access to it to begin with. But I I think outside of that, this was top to bottom a better movie in like every single way. A movie can be better than another version. I I think it is a testament to trusting the artist. I really do, yeah. and I think I think it is okay. That the studios who are really taking the brunt of the investment here, let's let's be honest, if you're talking just yeah. business-wise and money-wise, 
the studios are the ones who reap the rewards and they're the ones who feel the pain if it fails um, financially. So it is right for them to have input. It is right for them to protect their investments. I totally get that. But I think somewhere the needle peaked the wrong way. Some, somewhere within the last couple decades, studios became, we're going to protect our investment by really meddling and not trusting their artists. And I think the more you actually trust the artists, even if you don't like Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's a better movie because it's a consistent vision. Oh, yeah. Th- th- I think the word consistency and cohesion, We I saw it, in especially watching the two versions back-to-back, so many examples of chopped-up action in the theatrical version. When um, Steppenwolf stills one of the, the first mother boxes from Atlantis, there's a very brief scene with Aquaman and Mera, or Mira, uh, where they're fighting underwater, and Steppenwolf grabs the box and shoots off back to uh, wherever, Russia. And it's it's brief. It's like a couple of cuts and a punch and an explosion, and he's gone. And then in the full version, it's like, oh, there's an entire sequence. Yeah. There's, like a, there's a rising tension, and then Aquaman comes in, and then there's like this crescendo of action that builds and a choreography of geography where like the movement actually makes sense. And it's like, oh, this, is, this was here the whole time? And yeah. you just cut like... Aquaman enters frame, leaves frame. We can get rid of everything in the middle as long as he's still going left or right. People will be fine <laughs> following the direction. Like, no, you cut out an entire fight when he entered frame uh, left. Oh, man. Uh, and like just seeing that, but I get it. it. Like that adds another five minutes to the runtime. So we didn't have to just go in there with a hatchet and just, well, for reasons obvious, I don't it's, understand. It's obvious Warner wanted MCU type movies. It is so obvious to me that they saw what it, the success MCU yeah. was having. They hated the feedback they got about Batman v Superman, which, by the way, is still a very flawed film. They're like this. This movie improves that movie just in hindsight a little bit, but it is still a mess. Dawn of Justice is a mess of a movie, but it's also probably because Warner wanted to rush the process, right? And honestly, I don't know that Snyder could have made a two-hour version of this movie that works. I think it, it no, part of the no. reason it works is because he was basically given two movies to make it work. And, you know, I in hindsight, I well, guess... Well, here's a, here's a good uh, uh, thought experiment. Definitely, there's no way Justice League works uh, under, like, three hours, in my opinion. But if they had not put the horse before the cart, or the cart before the horse... Um, and actually developed a Cyborg and or Aquaman movies prior to Justice League, can you do this in three hours? If we already yes. knew who Cyborg was. Yes, 100%, because you get all this. By the way, this we're not going to spoil here. We will do a SIF spoil, but just in a general broad uh, sense. This movie does stuff with Cyborg that I loved so, so much. And we'll get into yeah. specifics in the spoiler. Yeah, you could, you could say have he's done in that. This movie. In his... He has an actual origin and arc yes. and development. Yeah. Yes, all of that was absent from the, the original. There yes. were moments of Cyborg's story that actually brought me to tears. Like, sure, uh, it's great. I'll just he's say the, that he's the heart where, of the, where the movie. he is. There's a scene. I'm very vague here, but where he is witnessing a woman go through her life, and I'm I'm watching. I'm like, how did you cut this out? of the original theatrical cut. This is emotional. It gives meaning to why Cyborg is doing the things he's doing now. Uh, Victor Stone is just a fascinating character, and for them to him-haw because he's the least well-known of the Justice League members that they just kind of threw him in to that theatrical cut. They're like, okay, everybody knows Aquaman, everybody knows Superman, Batman, uh, uh, Diana, Wonder Woman... 
and uh, uh, the Flash. Uh, not a lot of people know about Cyborg, so we'll we'll put him in the movie. But he's not really going to get you know the attention that he deserves in this in one. The, in the theatrical cut, we never see Ray Fisher's actual human face once, and it's that's crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. We only ever we only ever see him as Cyborg. We don't learn how he got there or what mm-hmm. he looked like before, what he was like before, and yeah. just the fact that Snyder's cut includes some of that, like flashback and before his his changeover to the to being cybernetic is such a welcome addition. Like, okay, I actually can connect to this person as a character because I'm not just, oh, he's here. He's actually, we're actually introduced to him, how he got his abilities and why we should care about him. And that's, that's it makes such a difference in caring about the characters when we actually know who they are. Because I don't really know who Cyborg is outside of uh, watching him in other animated Justice League properties. Mm-hmm. I really only know him through this. There, there is a alternate universe where <laughs> Warner decides not to rush things, where they they say, okay, MCU is what the MCU is because they did Iron Man they were and Captain yep. America and Thor. And then when they knew those characters were working, the plan was always to do a team up, but they then they figured out how to do the best team up based on what worked with those characters. Mm-hmm. I forgot that the first two movies... In the DC Extended Universe are Man of Steel, right? Mm-hmm. And then Batman, Batman versus Superman. Superman. That's yeah. the yeah. second movie in the, in the Extended yeah. Universe. That's before Wonder Woman. How insane is that? Like, I, I just... Madness. There should have been a Batman standalone movie with the new Batman. There should have been a Batfleck movie before Batman v Superman. There should The Wonder Woman movie should have come out before Batman v Superman. Then maybe you do a Batman and Superman meetup movie where the whole point isn't that they fight each other. Maybe they fight each other at the beginning just because they don't know each other, but then it's about more than that. And then you yeah. go into a Cyborg movie and a Flash movie, and then you do well, Justice just think about, League. So like, we, just, we just now are watching Snyder's Vision in 2021. Yeah. Imagine if instead in 2017 we got Cyborg. Right. 2018 we got Aquaman as scheduled. And then in 2019 or 2020 we got the Flash's movie. Then we get this, it would have been such a monumental difference in, in both box office returns and just perception. It would have been a, a game changer, but they were impatient. They couldn't wait. No. They wanted their cake and to eat it at the same time. And it's like, guys, you, you can't just dump Endgame on us and expect to make $3 billion. Like Marvel released 22 other movies first. You can't just <laughs> right. Well, let's just make let's just make a big movie. Everyone will love it. Like, no, that's not why it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's. We've talked. To, we've talked about a lot of the overarchingness to why the story this didn't work, of the movie being made, why it works now. Yeah, but let's right. talk specifically about the movie itself. Uh, what are some things that that worked or didn't work for you that the movie does? Um, and if you need to compare it to the other one, that's fine. I just mean this movie as a movie. What works about it? What doesn't? Uh, Andrew, why don't you start? Um, I actually really appreciate the separation of the movie into parts. I, it's not necessary, but for some reason it made it seem like it was more digestible. I'll say this right off the bat. Uh, is, this does not feel like a four-hour movie. For me, whenever I was watching it, it didn't feel like a four-hour movie. That's not to say that there are scenes I would not have cut out of this movie. It could have been a three-and-a-half-hour movie and it would have been, you know, that much better. But whenever they have, like, part one and, like, a chapter title and stuff like that, it made it seem like it was being cut up into uh, digestible segments where if you needed to take a break because 
for everybody watching, this is an at-home experience. You're like, okay, I've watched three chapters of Justice League today. I can pause, and then I can come back to it later if I need. Or you can do what I did and just binge-watch the entire thing. But it gives you that option of where you don't feel like, am I about to pause in a bad spot or am I about to miss out on something great? You're like, okay, it's stopping here and then another chapter. So this would be a good time for me to pause if I need to. And because of that, it gives you options or it gives you the ability to watch stories for specific characters in segments. Like there is a, a flash segment. There is a Victor stone cyborg segment. There are all these things caught or cut up and it just makes it feel a lot more, accessible and easily digestible yeah i th- I agree it, it reminded me a bit of uh, of the old intertitles that would be found in the middle of like four hour hollywood epics from mm-hmm. the golden age we don't do that anymore but this was a four hour movie and it didn't quite have an intermission but i liked i definitely liked yeah. the the broken up chapters which which made it feel a bit more um i don't know like um like a miniseries almost. And at four hours, a miniseries is pretty palatable. I think once I mean, when you, you put it that way, it's like, oh, that's not that long. <laughs> yeah, I think I think once you expand beyond the three and a half hour range, maybe even the three hour range, psychologically, you're going to do your audience a lot of benefit by giving them breath points, by giving them the idea sure. of, oh, here's a fresh start. We love, Psychologically, we love a fresh start. We get really excited for something new. And what's interesting about, you know, doing those those you know, breathing titles is all of a sudden it's like, oh, new section. What's this? Uh, and so psychologically, I think that that really does help a lot. Now, story-wise, I am ambivalent. I, you know, like I think in many ways they are, they, I understand the psychological trick that they do, but I don't, I didn't gain anything from them story-wise. Like I didn't mm. like, uh, it, in many ways it's, it's narration or, you know, other things that movies do to move you along and get you through. It's like, um, the the better the better experience for me is always going to be just visually watching the story unfold. And when you break from that, you know, I get it, but I'm ambivalent about it. I don't I don't think it serves the story necessarily. And there are some movies that do it terribly. Um, you know, where there are you know these titles that are supposed to you know be something, but they they aren't something, or you know whatever the case may be. I'm I'm thinking of a movie I love. Uh, like Love Love, and in fact, I just watched it recently and love it even more, uh, which is Bad Times at the El Royale. Love that movie. Um, just watch it again, and it like jumped up in my estimation. But those title cards are awful in that movie. Um, there are so many of them, and they don't indicate anything about that you need to know. Like it, it starts off being like a room one, room seven, and you think, oh, they're just doing that's kind of fun and clever. And then one's Washington D.C., and it's yeah. like there's like. 30 seconds of it takes place in Washington, D.C. The rest of it's still at the hotel. And then there's one that's like back to room seven. And in that section, it's like all over the place. It's in the lobby. And then it's in, you know, a different city. And then it's like, you know, at that point, you just, what are you doing with your title cards? Um, so I, I do find them to be annoying when you try that trick too much. But I think here it's it's necessary and understandable. So, yeah. Yeah. But the takeaway from that, besides the, your ambivalence to the story and the title cards... I'm sorry. You're in, in besides the title cards. You had an ambivalence to the story. Yeah, in general, uh, as far as their impact on the story, uh, in in they didn't they didn't serve me in any way. Well, what did, what did we think about uh, the story proper? The, this 
I mean, it's kind of a simplified thing, right? We have the big bad comes down from space, wants to obliterate the entire planet, and we have to get Earth's six mightiest heroes together. I think that this is a case of where a lot of us, me in particular, were comparing it to the original in the sense of, yes, it is a very simple, you know, bare bones, bad guy coming down, we got to stop him. But whenever I compare to the original theatrical release with Steppenwolf, and now I actually, with this version, understand Steppenwolf's motives, and I see, like, all the reasons why he's doing the things he's doing, um, and it actually makes makes sense. Cannot wait till we get to spoiler talk to talk about this. Um, but whenever I see all this stuff, that's where I'm going, okay, so they do it better here, ergo it's a better story. But I, it's that's but that doesn't make it back, back to less... back to Aaron's point though. I agree. Steppenwolf receives like legitimate backstory and, and dare I say motivation in this movie. We yeah. actually understand his motives, whereas in the original it's just bad guy wants bad box. Okay. But irrespective of the theatrical, if we had never seen that going in cold to Snyder's version, does it work? I feel like the story's still kind of thin, but I also don't know that I care because it looked really cool. And I and I kind of like that it's just okay, magic boxes stop. Okay, I get it. That's good. <laughs> I'll yeah, say no, this. Like, I, I think there's um, – MacGuffins are always interesting. Uh, you know, there's a balance in using them. You don't want the the story to revolve around them so much that the fact that they're meaningless at the end of the day um, ruins things. But you also don't want to use them so sparingly um, that they seem like a throwaway, right? Uh, I think this movie does that well. I, I think story-wise – uh, this movie holds together really well, and I agree with something both of you have said, and I would go even further, and I, I think the main factor in this story working so well is the villain, is expanding the villain. Yes, it was great to see more Cyborg and Flash, but it's Steppenwolf. It, it really genuinely is the expansion of understanding Steppenwolf that fixes this movie for the most part, yeah. um, story-wise. So, and he looks yeah, and good now, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. True. Yeah. <laughs> he looks really cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Man. Uh, there, I don't know what else to say because it's one of the, I have seen this multiple times, by the way. I should say that. I've seen it twice. I've heard I've heard a lot of people, and I'm impressed with your free time. I do not, not me. <laughs> have the availability to watch a four-hour movie twice in the first three days of its release, but you, more power to you. It's funny because... Uh, whenever we get into best ever director's cuts, there was a movie that I was surprised that I ha didn't know there was a director's cut of, and I wanted to see the runtime for the director's cut, and it was four hours. And I'm like, oh, I don't have four hours to watch a director's cut. And I immediately rewatched, and I, and I realized I just rewatched Justice League just Snyder did. Cut twice. So I'm like, oh. I, I'm, I'm going to break in just for a I'm second a and interrupt. I'm going to interrupt just to say, I want more four hour movies. I, I think I've been watching a lot of older movies, and older movies were much more uh, free when they really? felt like they wanted to be epic to you know uh, go four hours. In fact, I am for my buried treasure uh, today. I'm I'm talking about a four hour long movie, um, and it I mean it's not quite four, but it it pushes close to it. Um, but you know, movies like Around the World in Eighty Days is like three and a half hours, or you, you know, gotta consider too. Yeah, there, there's a there's a persistent and inaccurate. Um, assumption that the average moviegoer doesn't want to tolerate a movie that long. And yet the three highest grossing movies of all time, Endgame, Avatar, and Titanic, are all three plus hours long. 
So maybe that thinking is just bull, and <laughs> people want long, big, epic movies that have a full story. I, I'm totally and down I for it. I love movies like Dances with Wolves, Braveheart's like three hours and 15 You can do more. all-time yeah, favorites. Yeah, Good, bad, I, the ugly's love, like three and a half hours long. Yeah, long movies are good. I think- well, Good uh, long uh, well, movies are good. I was going to say, uh, Roger Ebert. <laughs> Roger Ebert said it best, right? No good movie is too long, and no bad movie is too short. Uh, um, and I mm-hmm. think that fits well here. That yes. yeah, the original Justice League, uh, the, the Whedon's cut. If that was just like stretched out with all reshoots for two or more hours, like oh god, like please no. But yeah. this was clearly a, a version of the movie that had a through line, and I thought it was paced really well. The four hours went by really quick. And they kind of needed four hours to set up all these different pieces, all these new characters. Something like three, half of the Justice League is brand new to the screen in this movie. We had not seen them before. Um, We have hindsight of having seen Aquaman's solo feature in between this and the original, but we're not supposed to have. This is supposed to have come out in 2017. You kind of have to go into it knowing that we don't actually know anything about Arthur Curry yet. This is his first time. And I think it worked because they had those extra hours in screen time to develop all these ancillary characters before they immediately team up in that same film. Um, But I also loved the pacing. The early shots of this movie show Bruce Wayne hiking over the mountains of Iceland to go and find Aquaman hanging out in that that tavern or that bar. This is in the theatrical cut too, but you just kind of see him walk over a hill and then he's there. This movie, you get like long sweeping shots over the, the snowy terrain and there, it gives a grandioseness to that opening that was just lacking. And I love when you have time to use it to flesh out things that you can't shortcut. You can't develop epicness in a sh- shorter film. Like the only way to do big epic shots is to take your time with it and to draw out, perhaps to Zach's detriment, too much slow motion. But if you have a two-hour movie, you don't get to have some of these really cool epic shots that develop the choreography and lay out some stuff and take their time with it. You mentioned and I appreciate that. You mentioned something that is one of my negatives. Uh, the slow motion. Uh, well, the slow motion, but it, what it represents. There's a lot of it. There's, there's quite a bit. There's a lot. Um, there is a balance here. And the when you let artists be artists, you can tell when there's no one saying no. And yes. sometimes artists need to be told no. And so <laughs> so there there is a balance. <laughs> and I feel like just having someone that could have reined in and tightened it up, just, you know, like, I, listen, we're just talking about how we love long movies, but I do think this movie is full of itself in the way it presents itself. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very, like, unapologetic. Yes. Yeah. And I joked about Topher Grace earlier um, because he's known for his, his fan edits. I think between this and the theatrical version, and perhaps only with this, there's a really good, like, three-hour and 15-minute movie here. And I think you could cut down a lot of the extra stuff, maybe even just get rid of the entire epilogue, quite frankly, and you have a really compelling, strong, and tight, well-paced three-hour and 15-minute movie. The only thing the, the the only thing that we've talked about that fixes this movie that is really difficult to do in less time is filling out the Cyborg and Flash and yeah, Steppenwolf yeah. stories, all three of them, that's yeah. going to take a few minutes. Like, that's, yeah. you know, that's the only part. The stuff about, you know, uh, character motivation, those things can be done a little quicker, but you really you really do need time with someone to identify with them and to understand them better. And Absolutely. that's hard to do. That's, that's one of the things 
that's hardest to do when you tighten something up is to really, um, you know, develop character. And so, uh, so that that would be my only comment to that is I'm not sure this one could actually be just over three hours, but I don't know. It, I'm it's yeah. it's possible, certainly possible. Yeah. Um, one of the other. I feel like we've talked for forty minutes, and I don't know if we've even scratched the surface yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> we I probably much, should move on. I've pretty much said what I. If you've got, let's say, each if you each have one more thing you want to say about this movie, pick your your favorite thing. We haven't, you know, talked about performances much because uh, they're pretty much the same. Although I I really am sad that Ben Affleck isn't going to be more Batman. I think he's so good in the role. Um, but I I said he really that, is. I said I, that coming I've out of the others too. Defended so. him. I don't I don't know if there's been a lot of people that didn't like him, but. From day one, I've thought Ben has been terrific. Um, but why don't you each, uh, if you've got one more thing to say, uh, why don't you think about that now? I was also going to say one of the other four-hour mo- movies I watched recently was The Ten Commandments, um, which is Very obviously fun. the definition of epic. Uh, but what I found interesting was Cecil B. DeMille originally did The Ten Commandments in 1923 and then sure did. and then remade it 30 years later. So it's basically hashtag, you know, release the DeMille cut happened for those 30 years. And he finally got his four hour uh, epic. He remade a, it, though. Yeah, he no, didn't, uh, no, you're right. You're right. That's that's the thing that directors don't really do much of anymore. Yeah. Hitchcock, Hitchcock did that did with the, uh, the, the man, man who, who knew too, too much. much. Yeah. So, yeah. I can't think of many other examples of someone remaking their own movie a generation later, but. Uh, it seems like a really cool concept to see how much you've improved as a filmmaker and mm-hmm. kind of go from there. Uh, my favorite moments of this movie, I think, are all kind of in the spoiler territory. Okay. But I think, by and large, uh, I just appreciated that things made sense. And I love that Snyder's vision, when actually fully realized, was generally, like, really entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I, I just – one of the big things I missed from the first version – and it was one of my like, uh, you know, above the fold negatives was we didn't get that incredible team up shot. Uh, all the Avengers yeah. movies have it. It makes it so gratifying. I'm such a dumb fanboy, but I love that fan slow person. motion shot. Oh no, you are, a fanboy. All, you are a fanboy. Where they all just <laughs> are in one shot, and somehow the theatrical version missed this. I don't yeah. know how you don't include this in reshoot somehow. Thankfully, it is here, and it's a great shot. Uh, I don't think it's spoiling to say that it is in it and it exists, but, and it's brief. It's like two or three seconds long, but it's in the middle of the action and they're all like almost posing, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it's so cool. And when you do a Justice League movie, that's what people want. They want to see Batman and Wonder Woman side by side in the middle of like a fist punch. Slow, like it's so cool. (laughs) Just that's that's all I needed. And I, I waited three and a half hours to get to that point in this movie, but I'm like, okay, thank you. You're immediately better than your predecessor on that one shot alone. And yeah. the rest of it just it just felt right. It felt like okay, good. This is what always should have been. <laughs> Andrew, what is your uh, kind of final? Uh, I, I do have a lot to say in spoiler talk, but I'm gonna throw out one very specific thing about this movie that I really appreciated. We talked a lot about you know a lot of slow mo in this movie, uh, but on the other hand, Snyder threw in some real time action scenes with some characters. Like, there's some with the Flash that are really cool to watch, but there's one with Diana, with Wonder Woman, uh, where you see her move in real time as opposed to, you know, just a slow-mo action scene, and Mm -hmm. it is a joy to watch. It is so cool, and it makes you love the character that much more. Uh, Also, I don't think in this version, I didn't notice that she was like a... 
sexualized as much as she was in the original? Am I just missing something where as like I didn't see her as like like, no, they took, I can't it, answer. I can't answer objectively. It's Gal Gadot. She looks fabulous yeah. no matter what. It's, if it's, anything, it's, I, it does. She could be wearing a paper bag and be like, "She's sexy." I don't. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking. If about. If anything, <laughs> I think that the character that's most sexualized in this movie is Jason Momoa because hundred percent, and he looks scene, great too. He's every fantastic. scene he's in, he has to take that shirt off, and to where it does, doesn't even make sense for him to take the shirt off. He's taking that shirt off, um, but. Uh, yeah, I really appreciated that they actually had some real time action scenes in this. No, that looked that looked really really slick because we yeah. always see the Flash and Quicksilver from their mm-hmm. perspective, where they, everything slows down to a stop. Yeah. But occasionally we see it from the outsider's perspective, and it's like, oh, what? Huh? You like, like yeah. blink and you miss it, and like everyone in the room has been rearranged, and it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, one final thing. I want to get your opinions on the aspect ratio. Be- before which, you ask that for- question, I, I do want to answer what uh, Andrew said. Okay, sure. I actually did. Uh, I do believe this was uh, much less male gazy. I think is the the phrase uh, mm-hmm. than the other version. I think. I think very specifically, they took out uh, a couple of those lower from behind, you know, shots that are definitely yeah. meant to uh, emphasize butt cleavage, uh, booty so, shots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I do. I did recognize that. I did. I did think that was a little bit different. But go ahead, uh, Jonathan. What I was going to say, what do we think about the aspect ratio? Presenting it in Great four question. three to quote unquote uh, preserve Zack Snyder's original vision. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I want to hear you guys before I sound off on this because I do have an opinion. I, I, man, I'm going to sound like I don't really care uh, <laughs> because I, if you think you're missing something, you aren't. You aren't missing any information it's not like they cut stuff off the sides this is how yeah, they yeah, yeah. shot the movie they sh- they shot it with the intent to frame it in IMAX um it was shot entirely in IMAX to frame it that way now psychologically i can see how you feel like you're missing part of the screen but if you were to see it fill your whole screen you'd actually be missing the top and the bottom they don't yeah. have the information for the sides so personally i am going to very um, maybe not even slightly. I'm going to land on the side of I'm glad they did it this way. I want to see as much as the visual information as as I can. Um, do I wish they had and shot Andrew? it differently? I mean, how do you wish that? It was in a world where they thought it was going to be showing on IMAX theaters. So, well, if you I, lived in Wonder Woman 1984's time, you could just you know make the <laughs> wish with uh, the that's true. That would be my one wish. That would be uh, your one wish. I I for me, the greater conversation is about. Uh, directors shooting for IMAX versus, you know, the regular ratios. And I think that is not, that one may be solved better now that theaters are becoming less of an impact. I don't know once we all go back if that's going to change, but um, I want directors to shoot with a very specific ratio in mind. I think you're always going to give it the best product when you're framing for a certain uh, ratio. Um, But... They can't right now. They have to shoot with both IMAX and widescreen in mind. And that's, um, that's I think that's unfortunate. I really wish they could just frame for, for one because I think you're going to get the clearest vision. So, and maybe that's, and maybe that's true here, you know, because he just shot thinking about IMAX ratio. So I, I think I'm for it. I think I'm, I'm totally fine with it. Andrew? I honestly, it took me, uh, I'd say about 30, 45 minutes before I even noticed it. Uh, because it's it's not like uh, 
I look for a f- like the 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 bars on the side as like a focal point or anything like that. But there were a couple times where the brightness contrast of the scene uh like really made it stand out. But here's the thing, it's a dark movie and I don't mean tonally dark. I mean it's shot dark for a lot yeah. of it so you don't really pick up on a lot of this stuff like whenever Diana jumps down into a tomb, you don't really notice the uh the the space bars on the side. So it, there were a couple scenes where I did notice it but for the most part I was just focused on, you know, the characters and the characters are always, you know, a center central point of the shots. So and I and I watched it on my big screen too, so you know that may play a role in it as well. I just it didn't bother me. Yeah. So, so I I will sound off in the negative then, um, which is that I'm always I've been from the outset a big proponent of preserving the original film. I've bought widescreen VHS tapes before widescreen before people understood what black boxes right. and black bars were and pan and scan always, and all that kind of stuff. Always yeah. been a big fan of that, but at the same time. We talk about um, having to frame two different screens at once. You have to frame for IMAX, but you also be cognizant this is going to end up on home media at some point. And Zach did that because why else would there be giant headroom in every single shot of this movie if they weren't eventually intending to crop it to 16 by 9 for home video like the theatrical cut? And I feel like so many of these shots were taller than they needed to be, and you could have cropped in to 16 by 9 and it would have been a perfectly good movie that would have filled up more of my TV. Um, personally, I'm not distracted by the presentation, but it felt, lazy is probably too strong a word, but it felt kind of like, well, I shot it this way. I don't want to bother figuring out, you know, where, where the digital frame is going to be for each shot. Even though for every other movie ever released, that's how they do it. They always shoot knowing this is going to end up on home media eventually. When they did Back to the Future, they have like literally guide bars in the camera and the behind the scenes features you can watch where Rob Zemeckis knows like, okay, this is going to be for TV because it's four by three. This is going to be for theatrical and maybe we'll just leave open mat in case we need to do some other version of it. They always have that in mind. And I think Zach was just, I think maybe high on his own supply because he got $70 million to remake a movie he already made. <laughs> then he was like, you know what? I don't, I don't need to change this for anybody. I'll just do it exactly how I shot at Frymax. And this would have looked fabulous on a 70-foot screen, but most of us watched it on 70 inches. And um, I, I, there's there's a bit of hubris there, I think, that kind of annoys me. Because, like, yeah, you can crop and zoom because every other movie does that. Yeah. Including IMAX movies. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um... This is that's minor. I just I just needed to rant there. <laughs> I think the answer the answer to the question is only one that Zach can answer is when you were shooting, what did what was your priority for how you framed? Yeah. You know, and you you could be right that I think in fact I think you are almost certainly right that uh whether there was a priority or not, he was certainly keeping in mind at least with the original shoot. Uh, both aspect ratios. Now on the reshoots, uh, who knows? You know, maybe he just shot those knowing this is always going to be. And I think my opinion, my opinion completely changes if they had framed every shot to fill four by three. But it was obvious they're leaving all this extra headroom above, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Ben Affleck's head and all these close-ups. It's like they're obviously planning to crop in for home media or for. Th- theaters that aren't regular cinemas. Mm-hmm. I think only like 5% of theaters are IMAX capable. So like they definitely left in extra room to account for that. Um, whereas I think on this vision, uh, this version, 
Zach's vision was like, you know what, screw it. Let's just, I'm just going to give him the full mat. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter that it, it's not quite framed correctly. Having, it's fine. They're... Having said that, um, I will still, almost without exception, I can't think of an exception, unless maybe it's a horror movie and I just don't want to see anything. Uh, I will almost without exception feel like I'm missing something if I know there's visual information that I don't get to see. Like there's this weird psychological part of me that's like, you, oh, I, I agree. You know, because I have the option on my TV to actually do a zoom crop on. <laughs> there's a button. On right. The you could control, have done that. Right. And I did it for a couple scenes and I'm like, this actually looks better. Mm hmm. But I'm going to be, I don't want to miss anything. I want <laughs> right, to watch right. it for three. So I will always have that thing that's like, you know, show me all the visual information you have. I want, you know, I want to see it. But artistically, framing yeah. is a huge part of cinematography. And so, you know, um, knowing what you're doing with framing is, I think, an a, a underappreciated um, skill. And, uh, and so, yeah. But, yeah, I give the benefit to the artist there. Well, there you go. There are some varied thoughts on Zack Snyder's Justice League. We knew we'd be talking about it for a while, and we've still got more to say that we will say in the Sift Spoil uh, for sure. So that should be in your podcast feed uh, as well. So let's head on to our next review, guys. Let's talk a little bit about Boss Level. Hey, Jake. Can I get a large bottle of that Bijou? You know what? Make it two large bottles. How can you drink like that? I used to complain that every day felt the same. And now every day is the same. Hey, Jay. I have died 144 times, and every day ends like this. But it doesn't matter. Not when you've lost everything you've loved. A retired military operative finds himself in a never-ending time loop on the day of his death. Uh, boss level is Frank Grillo, uh, Naomi Watts, uh, Mel Gibson popping in there as well. Uh, this is available on Hulu um, and is another one of their releases. It is yet another entry into the Groundhog Day genre. It is completely a genre now. Um, so what did you guys think about Boss Level? Did you like it, dislike it, love it, hate it, or it was just okay? Um, Andrew, you first. I liked it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, liked it. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like sounds like uh, maybe medium to low side of liked it. Uh, yeah. the way you said that. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, what are you uh, what are you thinking? I I totally love this movie. Nice, nice, solid. Loved it. Always, no, I really did. Always glad when we get one of those. Uh, I am on the high side of it was okay, low side of liked it. Um, I I certainly had. Fun, uh, Jonathan. What yes. uh, since since That's you since you loved it, uh, why don't you talk uh, about why you loved it so much? I think more than any other video game adaptation, this movie felt like a video game because the concept of Frank Grillo's time loop is that it restarts only when he's killed, like a video game. You die, you get to restart at the beginning of the level, and that introduced such a fun concept where he's learning how not to die. It's not just like learning how to help the people of Puxitani. It, there's there's a real uh, like tension and and purpose to the reset of the loop, and there's an entire montage in the middle where he learns how to sword fight. And I just love the concept of Bill Murray's not learning the piano for any reason other than like I want to learn it. I have time to kill. In this, Frank Grillo's learning how to sword fight because he needs to be good at the sword to get past the next quote unquote level of his like day from hell. Where every day he wakes up and people are trying to kill him. 
the second he gets out of his bed. And I really love that they played with that in a way that we didn't even get in Edge of Tomorrow, which I think is probably the closest analog to this. I was going to say, I, when ac- people say this... An action movie time loop. I, I, this I, is, I'm confused. Please tell me how this is more video gamey than Edge of Tomorrow. I think because it was having more fun. Okay. And this this movie mm. this movie isn't serious. There's a lot of jokes. It's very kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's a little less earnest. Kind of, yes. Okay. And I love that Frank Grillo is totally, like, just hamming it up the whole time. And there's big graphics on screen that say, like, attempt number 12, attempt 180 or whatever it is. And I don't know. I enjoyed that. And I think the yeah. humor mixed with the action, which was maybe a bit... Uh, too VFX heavy in some of the, the some of the shots, but generally it worked. I thought it was fun. Um, yeah, it was it was a good ride, and I love a time loop movie that does something different with the concept. And I feel like making this into more of a video game aesthetic really helped. See, it's it's interesting because you're kind of stealing one of my negatives away from me uh, because <laughs> I don't think this did anything new with the time loop concept. Uh, I, I I feel like I've seen all the conceptually I've seen all of this before what what was fresh to me was the tone and i think maybe that's part maybe that's that part of i think that's part of it is this is i think one of only like two or three action time loop movies and i think the first comedy action time loop movie and Uh, action is kind of you know that's that's i think that's a fair point that definitely comes close and that's a movie i really like um and i feel like that is sort of my my wheelhouse for for movies that Mm -hmm. i love is action comedy sci-fi and this is sort of a, a like a weird amalgamation of all three i don't know it, it just sort of hit all of my my spots yeah in, 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 in a great way scratched all my itches yeah no, I'll say, you know, i get that go, go ahead. ahead andrew no go no, ahead i was gonna say that um yes I, I actually agree with john on the fact that this feels more like a video game than edge of tomorrow uh but that's not to say that I think that this is a better movie than Edge of Tomorrow. No, no, Edge of Tomorrow is is a phenomenal yeah. film. Uh, this but is a couple st- points lower, but stylistically, I think to be compared. Mm-hmm. But I, I was think- going to say just to be compared to Edge of Tomorrow was always like a favorable comparison, no yeah. matter who you're. Yeah, that's a compliment to get compared. <laughs> yeah. But sure. um, but I think that for there, are, yes, the there's also the analogies you know between him actually playing video games at certain points in the. Uh, in the movie, but also you see stats show up on the screen. Like you see, you know, attempt number, attempt number, which is very statistically. That's those are things that you would find in a video game. Whereas where edge of tomorrow, it feels more like a, a a traumatic life (laughs) experience slash nightmare. Sure. uh, It takes, it takes the subtext and makes it actual text. Right, exactly. like it takes the subtext of Edge of Tomorrow and just says, "Oh no, we're not messing around. This is the actual text of the movie." Yeah, yeah. and and like exactly like what John said, as in a video game, you're meant to have fun, you know. And it feels like this is a fun. It's a fun, you know, ride to go on, as horrifying and grotesque and you know brutal as the movie can be. Uh, it's very much that Dark Souls mentality of I'm just gonna keep fighting this boss for 15 times, but I only have to kill him once, you know? And, uh, yeah, uh, I also agree with everything you said, Aaron. I don't think that this adds anything new to the Groundhog Day lived, I repeat, genre. It's just tonally different. That's all. I think, yeah, I, I, I think the reason I even push into the liked it part of this, uh, is almost solely 
in the hands of Frank Grillo. I think oh, he is great. so much fun in this movie, and I, I, I love his, um, I love his wit. I love kind of the sardonic nature of you know what he's. I was going to say he definitely has like this, uh, uh, this cynicism and sarcasm. Like yes. he doesn't care. Yeah, this is just like uh, just get it over, just kill me, <laughs> so I can restart. <laughs> Um, this seems like the kind of character Frank was born to play. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't always loved him in other projects. I, he's in one of the Purge movies, right? Uh, Boy, uh, yeah, uh, one of the bad ones. Yeah, he's like, like <laughs> one of the bad, exactly, one of the bad ones. And like he was, I kind of take it or leave it in the in the Captain America Winter Soldier. But this, I feel like he's so fun in this. Yeah. And yeah. there's something about his gruff sarcasm and his just like absolute does not care attitude that I really appreciate it. Cause I think that is the biggest difference to the time loop formula is, is his, his tone and, and sort of the persona he brings to it. There's, uh. there's in many ways, tonally, it's almost a better version of something like, uh, uh, was it hardcore Henry? Was that the name of, of the, the movie? Yes. Uh, that was the kind first of first person. person yeah. The movie FBS idea. Movie, yeah. It kind of reminded me tonally of that, but like a better version of that that wasn't so locked into its premise that it kind of you know suffered. Um, and, and because of that, I, I just I had a, I had a lot of fun with this central character, and because the movie rides on his shoulders, I had a great time you know with the movie. I, ha- I have a a lot of complaints about this, a lot of things I didn't like about this movie, but because he is so good, yeah. I still had a great time. You know, like I just what I wanted to hang out with him. Not like about it. Well, Andrew, I think you were starting to say something. So if you had something uh, on that that you wanted to say, uh, as a pro, I'm gonna sh- throw out this. I was shocked that this movie got me on an emotional level. Uh, there's like a segment of this movie that I was like, "Oh, this is this is pretty depressed. Like it's happy, but it's also super sad." Completeness oh, like, I have- for me. Complete miss really? for me. The emotional stuff. You know what I'm stuff. talking about, don't you? Yeah, I do know what you're talking yeah. about. I was just like, I, I don't connect to this at all. Like everything about this movie has told me not to connect to this, and now and now you want me to like kind of shift some sort of weird gear with I don't know. Like you said, everything about this character is like I don't care what's the and like it just I, there wasn't enough of. There wasn't enough of character work done for me to buy into whatever it was trying to do. To I, me I'm inclined to agree that when when Frank Grillo's character was more earnest and like heartfelt, um, I got what they were trying to do, and and I I kind of connected, but I didn't like emotionally really concern myself. It was like okay, he's gonna get a happy ending. Like all right, this is yeah. I, good for him, but yeah. like, I'm not crying. Over it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I also hated the ending of this movie, um, but. <laughs> I'll say this, uh, for the for the majority of the movie, he has this why-does-it-matter attitude, you know, just, you know, him hauling around the day. But whenever it gets to those emotional moments, I can see in his performance, and I, I like Frank Grillo and a lot of stuff, but uh, seeing him live out those moments, you know, you know, over and over again, just for that single moment, just to figure out, I'm trying to be very vague, obviously, um... But it hit me like now he is realizing what he has that he can fight and live for, you know, like what really matters. No, I, I, I actually I will say that moment I think did work, and I did appreciate that. Yeah, there's there's another uh, there's another part of this. Um, and I'll I'll go ahead and get into that was one of the big things that I just anytime this movie went away from what I was having fun with, uh, mm-hmm. it just kind of lost me. Um, in in the the emotional stuff that you're talking about was part of that part of that is also the 
this isn't bad. This isn't horrible. This is just movies. This is just movies being movies. But there's just a big thing with this movie, uh, a big cheat of, well, uh, if you don't do anything, something's going to end the level for you. And yeah. it's just like, and it's just like, okay, I get it. It's a movie being a movie and trying to do its concept. But uh, there's there's just something. It just closed the universe off a little bit too much for me um, in, in some ways. I, I totally um, hear you, but I feel like that's another video game thing. Sure. That is absolutely, oh, absolutely. Like, there's time limits. There's things right. that Fortnite, you know, where the map closes in around your players I, and you die if you just stay still. I would have respected this movie and probably notched it up so much more if there was, and I guess this is a spoiler because this isn't the twist, but if, if the twist was he was actually in a video game, like all of a sudden yeah, right. a lot of this stuff becomes, you know, more fascinating to me. But we're supposed to be watching an actual conceptual idea of the real world. And so, yeah. and again, this goes back to the MacGuffin conversation and really yeah, the machine sure. and the concept, all that is a MacGuffin. I totally get it. Um, but I, I like Andrew, the other big thing for me was the ending. Um, and because you liked I don't, it? no, 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 it was one oh. of my, another one of my big negatives. Oh, um, another thing. Okay. Okay. Because it, if, if we had a chance I can't. It's hard to explain this without spoiling, but yeah. I don't know that we want to do a whole spoiler episode on this. I, we don't need to. I, I, I will. I will just say that when you watch this, uh, that will be a key factor, I believe, in how you feel about the movie. Is if you think that's fun, interesting, or if you feel cheated. Um, and I definitely felt cheated, uh, big time. So we haven't yeah. really talked about Mel Gibson, or honestly, we haven't even talked about Will Sasso at all. <laughs> I, was just about, right? I was just about to say, what what do we all think about uh, Hollywood pariah Mel Gibson as the primary villain, which seems to be, for better or worse, the only roles he's getting these days. I, oh, no, um, he was Santa. He was Santa Claus not too long ago. <laughs> he wasn't really a good Santa. <laughs> I like that uh, movie. It was fun. I, uh, yeah, I, I know it's it's weird treading on some of these these waters, um, but I thought he was great in the movie. And yeah. I, I, think, I, don't, I, I, I understand why it's weird to other people, but I'm, I'm a big Mel Gibson fan, and I don't really, yeah. I try not to bring people's personal issues or lives into criticism or appreciation of their work. And Mel's fantastic; he's always been a great yeah. actor. And I think this is kind of that like role he can really just chew the scenery on and just get really into it. There's a monologue early he gives um, about uh, watching a pig being eaten alive by a snake, and this is like this long, like three minute story about. I think the virtues of patience or just how mm-hmm. people take what they want. And it's just good. He just had fun with this. And I was like, ooh, I could listen to him tell stories for all, all day. Well, he this has that great. voice, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something about, he has like a gravitas that just, yeah. you own, that's earned. Because he's been doing action movies for 30 years. Yeah. And I think that's something that he, he brings to the table. And I wish they used him more. He's really only in like one location. Because uh, he's the boss, technically, so we only see him at like the end of each level. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, I, I, I really liked him in this. The, one of his, one of his better performances in a while. The other part of the video gamey nature of this that felt inauthentic to me, like I mentioned, the the conceit of you know something ends it or whatever, is the uh, mini mini bosses. Um, mm. It just yeah, it, yeah. it it was so manufactured to be a video game that again it takes me out of feeling any kind of authenticity into this world. Um, so again, a twist where it's like, no, it was actually a video game. All of a sudden that all makes sense, you know, but it, it, we don't get there. So, yeah. um, it's not yeah, serenity. I just, 
I just felt. Oh man! Oh man! This, this movie is better than Serenity. Let's be I very, that very clear. Until just now, <laughs> and we're not talking what? about the Firefly movie when we're talking no. about the Serenity. This movie. We're talking about all right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. Which I am like one of four people that likes that movie. <laughs> I I appreciate that it it existed because it is just absolutely it's bonkers. Bananas. It is bonkers. It's so crazy. It is bonkers. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts, guys? I think I've said my piece. I think I think you can come away yeah. from this understanding why I I just if I, I, Frank Grillo's awesome in he on his shoulders alone he has you know perpetuated me into almost breaking the liked it barrier, but not quite. I, I think if you're a fan of like shut your brain off pulpy action mm-hmm. that I am, you're gonna have a great time with this. Um, and secondary thought, if you're a fan of Boston's eponymous debut album, Foreplay Dash Long Time features prominently in this, and it is awesome. That song slaps. It Put it in every film. I will love it unconditionally. Boston's Long Time is an all-time band. This has been Needle Drops with Jonathan Pollock. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the fact that you know everybody in this movie had fun making it, yeah. Mm-hmm. it yeah. you, you feel that come through the screen, and it's kind of infectious. So you you have fun along with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. That is Boss Level. It is available on Hulu if you want to check it out. And I think it's still a recommend from all of us. I mean, you know, if you especially if you're already subscribed to Hulu, um, you know, throw it on some night and, and I think I think from what we just said, you'll know whether or not you want yeah. to watch it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, before we head on to the Best Ever Challenge, another huge thank you to our Sif Pop members. You guys are amazing. Uh, and a reminder that if you would like to support Sift Pop and be a member, you can do that at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Sift Pop. Um, S-I-F-T-P-O-P. Uh, if you have started hearing in your podcast uh, episodes, some commercials pop up. That is another way that we support what goes on here. If you don't want commercials, members don't get them in their member podcast feed. So that's a, another little bonus uh, if you head that way. Uh, and there's lots of fun stuff there as well. You can check it out again at patreon.com slash siftpop. And again, a huge thank you to those who are siftpop members. We appreciate you and we love you. All right, Letty, let's go on to the best ever challenge. We're doing best ever director's cuts. Uh, when I had sent the email, I'd said we're actually ranking the director's cuts. And then I realized I actually haven't seen a lot of director's cuts. Uh, <laughs> so I will do my best. There actually are two on my list that... Well, I think one. There's technically one on my list that I haven't even seen, but I wanted to talk about. And this was I, definitely I a, a this was definitely like a, a thinner group to pick from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I tried to tally up every director's cut I've ever seen, and and I'm including generously, and I hope you guys did too, because otherwise it would be really difficult. Um, extended versions, uh, oh, like sure. DVD. Yeah. I, I don't know that that technically qualifies as a director's cut. It's not like he retooled his own vision, but just expanded editions. Um, and even all that said, there's only like 10 or 11 films that I think even qualify yeah. as like a, a, a new cut, at least in a significant way to qualify right. for such a category. But right. um, yeah, I, I have I have five ranked. Yeah, uh, yeah, so I, I ranked five as well. It. So let's go through them. Um, there may be some some trumping here if you have it higher than somebody else. We'll see how that goes. Um, Andrew, why don't you kick us off? What's your number five? Uh, I'm going to go with Watchmen. Uh, the, whenever I first saw this movie in theaters, I hated it, like truly, truly hated this movie. Uh, but the director's cut, I think was a pretty, pretty good improvement on it. Uh, it's still the worst soundtrack for a movie ever. (laughs) Um, it's, it's, it's actually impressive how bad the the music (laughs) choice 
uh, for this movie was. And uh, honestly, I think there were a couple times in uh, the Snyder Cut where I was like, yeah, I wouldn't have chose that song. I wouldn't have chose that song. And, Wait, the and Snyder, think, the the Justice, Justice, Justice League. League Snyder cut or the yeah. Watchmen Snyder cut? No, no. Uh, yes, both. Actually, <laughs> um, we, we didn't we didn't we didn't touch upon it, but yeah. um, I felt the theatrical version of Justice League had a better score. Danny Elfman yeah. did better work than the ancient lamentation music that kept playing. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll I'm not talking about like uh, <laughs> you know the score is one thing, but the soundtrack, like the songs, like the actual mute songs. Yeah, no, that that too, I didn't care for. Really bad. <laughs> but I do think that uh, Watchmen, the director's cut, makes the the movie a lot better. I still would only come away saying that I kind of like Watchmen now. Uh, visually, I think it's beautiful, but I think that the story was lacking from the original. And they just kind of approved upon it. Maybe. Again, I haven't seen either, so I guess I'll seek out the director's version. I'm guessing that's what I saw. Is that the version that's on HBO Max? Yeah. I'm guessing. Um, maybe mm-hmm. that's why I liked it a little bit more. I thought it was longer than I remembered it being. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't say like any kind of special edition or anything. It just said Watchmen. So, um, yeah. I'm assuming, yeah. I, I yes I again just watched this uh, so hey here's a, here's another uh, director's cut I've actually watched apparently yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's still I still don't like it but uh, but I think it it made more sense to me and now I'm wondering if that's because it was recut because I remember mm-hmm. being very confused the first time I thought this time it was because I had come through the Lindelof show and had done a little more research on the comic itself, even though I've never read it. And so I thought maybe that's why it made a little more sense to me, which probably has mm-hmm. an impact as well. Sure. Um, but even so, I, I think this is a movie that, that is a, a mess uh, when it comes to uh, like audience investment. Like this movie never figures out what it wants its audience to feel about its characters. In my opinion, like I can't figure it out at least like what it's, you know how I'm supposed to feel about any of these people and and what they're doing, but um, that may just be a me thing. So yeah. anyhow, no, not uh, just you. You're good, <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan. What's your number five? Um, we already talked about it, but uh, Batman vs Superman: Colon Dawn of Justice Dash the Ultimate Edition. Yeah, uh, is a lumbering title and a lumbering film, but the extra thirty <laughs> minutes really, really help um, elevate this one from sort of a confusing mediocrity to cohesive entertainment and this <laughs> confusing still, mediocrity uh, mediocrity to yeah. cohesive mediocrity <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I, I would say this is still a deeply flawed film um but character motivations make a bit more sense we get more of the action um and i watched these two versions years apart so a lot of it was i remember this being kind of crap and then i watched it again this week the long three-hour version I was like this is really good did i remember it wrong or were, were those extra 30 minutes the big difference uh, I'm inclined to uh, be a bit of both. Maybe I just have been softer in recent years on films like this. But, uh, yeah, the Ultimate Edition is, I think, for me, the the, the way to watch this movie going forward. Uh, this is the one I haven't seen. So, And I'm going to be the first not to name a Zack Snyder film, uh, by the way, in this category. <laughs> We're just doing Zack Snyder films, apparently. Uh, I'm going with Sergio Leone, uh, Once Upon a Time in America. This um, is the four-hour one I was talking about that I hadn't seen. Yeah, I haven't that. either. And uh, How are you naming a movie you haven't seen? This feels like a cheat. It is a cheat. It's totally a cheat. That's why That's why I, I, I mentioned it before. Like I only have four that I've seen that I could think of. All right, so, fine, fine. That's all right. fair. 
And one of those is even a stretch. So I apologize. When I started looking at this category, it's like, oh, I don't go back and watch director's cuts. It's just not mm. something that I've usually done. Now, since you both have mentioned ones I've actually seen that I didn't think about, maybe that should replace my my number five. Um, but I did want to mention this one because it is often cited as the most important director's cut because if my understanding of it is correctly, it really got chopped to pieces to get it down to where they wanted it. And they did a firefly on it to where they, yeah, they put scenes yeah. in out of order and Oh no. Yeah. It, it was, it was really bad. And then Sergio Leone, he's like, I, I'm going to re-release it and it's going to be four hours long. And you know me, I love Sergio Leone. He is one of my favorites from all the the Man with No Name trilogy, like Good, Bad, mm-hmm. the Ugly, and all those, and Once Upon a Time in the West. And obviously, this is where uh, Tarantino gets all of his inspiration for like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood sure. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I haven't seen it because it's such a long movie, and I I, I haven't I seen it either. And I'm wondering, so the the longest version, the th- like three hour and fifty minute, that's the one I should. That's check the out? director mm-hmm. cut. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so I will, I'm sure I will get around to seeing that sometime soon, uh, but I have not seen it yet, but I did want to mention it. So I put it in at my number five. Uh, all right, let's go on to our number fours. Andrew, what do you got? Uh, if we were ranking how good the director's cut is compared to the original one, this would be my number one, but I'm ranking okay. how good the movies are, you know, mm-hmm. as a sure. whole. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get it. Fair. Yeah. Uh, but my number four is kingdom of heaven because yeah. This movie, when I first watched it, I hated it. I hate. I thought that it was so bad because I thought I because I saw a, a wasted potential in it. I thought, but then everybody's like, uh, "Have you seen the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven?" I'm like, "I've heard no. about this actually. I I remember when it came out, getting lukewarm reviews, and I had skipped it. Yeah. And then I want to say within the last six months, someone recommended it to me again, and I was like, "Really." It's and I think sh- they had said what you said, that the director's cut is what you have to watch. It's shocking. It's not even the same movie, it feels like. This is, if this was what was like released that year, I'd be like, oh, that was one of the best movies of that year. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy how good this movie is compared to the original one. Uh, the motivations for Orlando Bloom, um, seeing Edward Norton as the, the Leper King, it, it's, it's such, and it's beautiful. There are so many shots in this movie that are like, this is gorgeous. Why did you cut this from the original? It's one of those, uh, as we talked about with uh, Warner Brothers uh, earlier with Snedeka, it's it's studio meddling, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is obviously a much, much longer movie, but sometimes a movie needs to be long to truly appreciate. And when it's yep. a movie as big and epic as this one was, it was a crime to really cut it down and try, and, try and make it, uh, you know, a... a, de- a an average length movie. It needed to be longer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good choice. Uh, that was in my honorable mentions of other ones I hadn't seen, but uh, have heard like amazing things about the director's versions. Um, what do you got, Jonathan, at number four? Um, I rank mine differently uh, than Andrew did. So my number four is actually one of my all-time favorite films. So if we were ranking it based on overall quality, this would definitely be number one. But just based on how much it improves the theatrical not much, but the extra 20 minutes added to Terminator 2 Judgment Day <laughs> adds some... Add, okay. There you go. So, wow. That scared is, me with that. Yeah, that is, mo- that is one of the most intense we've ever had. That was amazing. Yeah, I know. 
And uh, honestly, I had no reason for it to be that emphatic of a Trump, but it just the spirit took hold no, of me, and I'm like, this, oh, this I got a this is, this big is, Trump coming up here. You can you can only do that with Jonathan, who's very familiar with us and comes by often. Like if that were if that were a new guest on the show, they yeah, right. never come back. <laughs> it would never come back. I need to watch the playback. I feel like I jumped out of my chair. It's like Jesus, what happened? Honestly, I'm gonna have to watch it too because I closed my eyes and I just screamed, so I didn't even see what you guys did. Uh, uh, so yeah, uh, Trump. Yeah, uh, my number four then is the other stretch. Uh, I have a Kill Bill: The Whole Bloody Affair here. Uh, as a director, I think that counts. That's not that's not a cheat, but it is kind of like it's a stretch. It's a little bit of a stretch. What's um, the uh, whole bloody affair? It's they take both movies into one. Yeah, oh, really? he edited both. Yeah, he edited the two movies into one, which he says is was originally what he wanted to do. But you know that this are there any other structural changes besides? I don't just think so. I think it's them? just connecting them and in, in what it took to. You know, kind of uh, connect the pieces. So, okay, yeah, but uh, but as a complete film, I do think it does work better. I just, you know, there is there is something about, you know, I, I get that they that the there is um, a complete idea in both halves, but it is so much more complete when you see them as you know a whole thing. So, I did want to mention Kill Bill: The Whole Bloody Affair. So, okay, yeah, I'll allow it. All right, good. <laughs> oh, <allow it. laughs> as long as it's not Saving Private Ryan as a female's name. Hey, you weren't you weren't he, you weren't here, but I got a lot of a lot of positive support on that choice. Uh, no, so I disagree. <laughs> you are judged by a jury of your peers. That is true. That is true. Hey, listen, and it doesn't matter if if Andrew wants to use his veto, he gets to use his veto. And, I get you know, one veto a year, and that was he it. gets one a year. So there you go. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move into our number threes. Andrew, kick us off. What do you got at number three? Um, James Mangold has said that this is the version he prefers. There's nothing added to it or taken away, but I'm going to go with Logan Noir, the black and white version of Logan. He oh, says that this is the version that he prefers, and I, I do like it. I think that it is... Uh, it definitely adds to that grittier tone, you know. It almost made it feel in parts like Sin City, which I'm not a fan of Sin City, but it's just, it added something new to a comic book genre film that I hadn't seen, you know, black and white. It was already, you know, tonally a lot different from most comic book movies I'd seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and George Miller did this with uh, Fury Road as well, right? Uh, released a, a black and white? He did, but I, I totally think that Fury Road is better viewed with all those amazing I love colors. the color in that it's movie. So it's just good. like absolutely just orange, bright, bright colors. Yeah. Um, Logan, I think, having not seen it in black and white, probably lends itself better to the monochromatic it kind does. of noir look. I, I'm, I'm still nice. going to go with that. I prefer the, the colorized version, but seeing it is like, it's something that I really appreciated and I thought was, it's, it wasn't a wasted gimmick. It actually had a good tone to it. Right on. Yeah. Nice. Uh, all right, on to uh, let's see. Are we doing our number, number three? three? John's number three. Jonathan, your number three. Which is a, a, a familiar face. Um, Superman number two, the Richard Donner cut. Um, <laughs> this, I think, is the closest analog to Zack Snyder's Justice League mm. in terms of how different it is from the original movie. Every other pick on my list is just an extension, or they're adding in scenes, changing some things. The Richard Donner cut, I want to say, is like 40% new footage, and it has a very similar story to Justice League, where halfway through production, Richard Donner was pulled. Um, I'm spacing on who replaced him, but they ended up 
reshooting a lot of the movie, changing the tone, changing the direction, changing a lot of the story beats. And Superman 2 is not by any means a bad film, but the Richard Donner cut, which came out like 25 years later in 2006, is definitely a superior film. And the characterization, the inclusion of Marlon Brando in The Fortress of Solitude was really cool. I think this remains Marlon Brando's last screen credit because it came out in 2006, um, long after he had passed. And maybe not long, but a few years anyway. And I don't know, there's, there's a lot of improvements they made to the story. And it's obvious because this is the original version, the original vision of Richard Donner's uh, vision. And it is uh, definitely, I think, the... The version of Superman 2, if you're going to watch that franchise, this is the one you, you watch second. Richard Lester is who replaced Richard him. Lester, that's right. Very nice. Um, that that movie is bonkers. Uh, Superman 2 is, is... The original or the, the Richard Donner version? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with both, uh, okay. actually. <laughs> they have... They have what's, what's really interesting is both movies have a completely separate cold open. And it's like a 15-minute action sequence in both movies... And they're completely separate. One was filmed for one movie, one hmm. was filmed for the other. And on that alone, it's like this feels like a this feels like a yeah. fourteen minute bonus scene. Um, <laughs> everything else is sort of structurally similar, but like the first opening is just a different film. Very nice. Uh, I guess that brings me to my number three, which is almost famous: the bootleg cut. Um, if you've never seen this, I highly recommend it. There are several extra scenes. Uh, in it that I think do quite a bit to uh, expand out the characters, including one scene uh, that you actually have to play your own music to uh, to get. Uh, he could not get the rights to Stairway to Heaven, and there's a scene uh. where he plays Stairway to Heaven for his mom, trying to convince her why he can go on the road and do this thing, and oh. it's it's really a great scene and really helps build out that idea of why she would let him do this, which is one kind of my big questions, you know, watching the movie is like, just let your, you know, kid go out on the road and rock and roll. Uh, and so it really does add a lot, but you, you actually have to play your own Stairway to Heaven to <laughs> feel it in its in, entirety for that scene. That's really fascinating that he that wasn't able to so secure cool. the rights because yeah. I feel like Page and Plant gave away the music for the rest of the movie. Yeah. I mean, Stillwater is very famously based mm -hmm. on Zeppelin. Um, so they gave their permission for everything else but their magnum opus. Yeah. Which I guess J Jimmy Page can do what he wants, right? I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. But uh, but yes, check out uh, Almost Famous, the bootleg cut, if you get a chance. It is on uh, at least one of the Blu-rays. Um, I, I have been meaning to rewatch that, so yeah. I will I will seek out that version. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I love right, Almost move, Famous. Move on to our number twos, then. Uh, Andrew, what do you got at number two? Judgment Day. This is where I got oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. Let's talk about it. It's uh, it's one of those things where it doesn't really add too much to it, to where it's like it changes the movie and makes it completely you know different. T two is still one of the greatest movies of all time, and everything else added to it is kind of just like icing on the cake, sort of a thing. But seeing it's like it's like think of your favorite pizza and you finished it, and now here's one more slice. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Is the original pizza not great? No, it was fantastic. But I'm still hungry. Want more? That's the that's the like the version of this. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a a separate director's cut of Terminator two that includes a happy ending set in the future where Michael Jackson is name-dropped as being 50 years old. And there's, like, it almost looks like Back to the Future 2 with, like, the hoverboards and, like, the bright neon coloring and the, and the clothing. And 
that version is tonally way out of step with the rest of the movie. Yeah. But it's a really interesting um, kind of look at what Jim Cameron might have gone with if someone else hadn't reined him in. Because mm. um, it was filmed, they scored it, they did the visual effects for it, and then at the last minute they're like, this does not fit. Just get Linda Hamilton to voice over whatever tape we have in the reel. And it's like, oh, that shot of the, the pavement going by at night. That's good enough. Yeah. We only need 35 seconds. Um, and I think just just for as a curiosity, there's some cool stuff in the extended edition. Yeah, the <laughs> scene where they uh, they're taking out the chip out of the T800. So cool. It's so cool, and it adds a lot to uh, you know uh, Car- uh, Connor's distrust of the machine. You know because she lived through you know the first movie and just the nightmare that she went through. You get a lot more of her hesitation to trust the t-800 as opposed to in the in the original cut you get uh, a kind of fairly smooth transition from her being afraid of the t-800 to accept accepting him as john's protector you know uh also i really liked uh towards the end of this movie the t-1000 how it's malfunctioning because of the explosion and like how it's like kind of morphing into the environment around it. Uh, oh, there's some really slick visuals that they're definitely like flourishes. Again, they don't change the framework of the movie, but those little like toppings just yeah. make it such a better experience. And the, the 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 scene you're talking about, I think, is probably the biggest part they excised from the theatrical, where they switch on the learning chip inside Arnold's head. Yeah, contains one of the coolest like practical effects, where they have two Arnolds looking into a mirror. Linda Hamilton and her twin sister, and the camera does like a full spin around shot yeah. with a mirror behind them, and it's like you're opening up Arnold's head with a mirror behind him, and like how did they do this without literally drilling into the future governor's scalp? And <laughs> the answer is Jim Cameron's a genius. Yeah. Um, look up the shot on YouTube because from just like a a, a VFX appreciation standpoint, yeah. one of my favorite like shots, nice. wonders. From early '90s cinema, it's really cool how they did it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so Very that's nice. my. I could, I could two. fanboy over this film all day. So let's oh move yeah, on. Uh, I, I cry <laughs> every single time uh, he gets lowered down into the pit. Every time I cry. Brilliant film. It's good I stuff. I think it's like number six for me, like all time. It is top top. Shelf. Oh, it's in, it's nice. in I think my top twenty or top thirty for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's in my top three Cameron movies. Um, we will move on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love T2. I'm just being silly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's see. So that would bring us to my number two. John's number two. John's number two. John, what do you got at number two? Oh, that's right. Uh, cause we, we, had tr- that was my, actually my number four. Uh, my number two is the extended version. Uh, speaking of Jim Cameron, the abyss. It's a good choice. The 1989 underwater I don't know, epic underwater drama. It is a curious film, uh, and it kind of goes where <laughs> a lot of other screenplays haven't. Um, the extended edition includes an alternate ending, which is so much stronger and more powerful and meaningful than anything we got in the abrupt theatrical version, which just kind of ends. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. awful in comparison. Like, the ending of this is like a 10-minute extended sequence that explains, like, who the water is. Like, up until now, it's just, okay, water can create sentient form and kind of communicate with our heroes, Ed Harrison, um, the other characters down on their underwater rig. And the extended ending basically shows Ed Harris meeting the underwater aliens 
whatever you want to call them, and having a conversation and them explaining what's going on. And the result is like, okay, cool. This is what I wanted the whole time. It's like, imagine the movie Mission to Mars, but they never actually go inside the, the I guess, spaceship. <laughs> um, that's the theatrical version. Like, it's, it's so disappointing not to get the ending. You might disagree with the direction, mm-hmm. but the theatrical version is basically an unfinished movie, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and seeing that, and which includes some awesome visual effects... Oh yeah. Um it's such it's such a more satisfying ending like oh okay this all was building to something important and there's a message and a lesson and it looks cool. Um so yeah the extended version of Abyss is is by far the definitive way to watch it. I'm going to add the director's cut extended to see the Abyss cuz I I I like the first Abyss or the I guess I say the first but I guess theatrical release uh like you I was like I guess it's just one of those things that's going to be a mystery. What's going on? With yeah, and the I don't, I don't like mysteries. In movies like this, where they <laughs> built up so many concrete scientific blocks, yeah, don't cop out and say it's just whatever. It's like no, I, you, we're building an alien race. Pay it off. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, let's see. We're going with my number, number two, two now, um, which is a 1927 movie. Uh, Metropolis. Metropolis. Um, it's interesting to call this one a director's cut because it's it's basically a a director's restoration by not the director um but i think it is trying to give you the intended version of this movie as opposed to the one that even at the time was cut up and sent to um the theaters that existed in 1927 uh so yeah so fritz lang uh the german director really doing stuff here that is so far ahead of its time it's almost unbelievable it's unfair. Um, it, it really is I- incredible uh, what this movie is doing in 1927 and how it informs so many movies uh, after that. And um, it's very sci-fi. It's very much about um, you know a, a possible world that could come to exist, and yet it's full of emotion and character. And of course, it's a, it, it is a silent film. Um, but the restored version has a soundtrack applied to it. Uh, the version I saw, which I think is the uh, uh, approved restored version, and I believe is on Amazon uh, Prime, if you're a Prime member, uh, includes music that is very modern. And I guess I'm okay with that because it's a silent film. So that aspect of it is, is um, I don't know, I found that interesting, but I, I really liked it. So... Uh, I wanted to mention Metropolis as my number two. If you haven't gotten a chance to check it out, uh, it's definitely one I would recommend. So I am curious which version of this I saw. Which was I was a just few about to say the same now. thing. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't actually know which version it was. I will have to go back and, and double check. I don't think I saw it on Prime. This is, I think, before they really did streaming video. This is like four or five years ago. But yeah, um, yeah, that's um, actually I have a poster of Metropolis in my hallway. Uh, it is one of my favorite films, certainly of the silent era. It is like extraordinarily mm-hmm. impressive from a technical perspective. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love movies that impress me, um, and there's very few that are a hundred years old that look that good. Yep, yep, ninety-four years old. I mean, if you want to be specific, but yeah, we're yeah, we're almost there. Rounded well, up, should be rounded well, up six years. Yeah. I, I did think there should there's probably a podcast somewhere that's like doing like movies that a hundred years ago right because we're starting to get to that point where we're really going to start to dip into a lot of the the real classics as cinema became kind of a, a big art form yeah uh, hitting their hundredth you know anniversary so I, I've made I've made a habit the last few years of deliberately seeking out 
hundred-year-old films as some of the first things I watch every year. The first thing I watched this year was a film from 1921. Um, and I it's just great to go back and see what we were doing a century ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we're still able to watch holds up. Yeah. And the stuff that was lost to time of, I think, 70 to 90% of all silent films have been. Um, they might have sucked, and we'll never know. But the stuff that we're able to watch, the stuff that's available on streaming, like <laughs> Metropolis, is is pretty good. Yeah. There's a reason it's been restored. I, I You know, I was... Go ahead. I, ty- I typed in 100-year-old movies, and the first one that popped up was Birth of a Nation. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that's okay. what we were doing 100 years ago. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's amazing how things... Well, his other movies are a little better. Amazing uh, how things have changed and also not changed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I will say I saw it on Hoopla, actually. I'm wrong. It's not on Amazon Prime. Uh, I saw it on Hoopla, which is uh, my library's version of streaming. Um, so that, that is where I saw the uh, new version of Metropolis because it's public domain. It's available in lots of places. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you could even you find it on I, YouTube. I honestly might've just downloaded it from archive.org. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's available in plenty of places. A lot of actually a lot of silent films are just on YouTube. Yeah. If you want to get into like a, a rabbit hole of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, well, there you go. Yeah. Names in, and there's hundreds of films on there. Yeah. Uh, all right, our number one. Xander, kick us off. What's your number one? Uh, this shouldn't be a surprise. I'm going with the Lauder trilogy. You know, it's, yeah. it's just one of those things. I, I'm <laughs> Me as not, well. I'm not going to... You too, yeah. It, I'm yeah. not going to sit here and say that the uh, director's cut, the extended editions, are way better than the theatrical cut because actually... I, I was gonna I was going to say the same thing. The theatrical is still really good. Yeah. But think, it's such a good world that you want more of it. Yeah, yeah. that's that's all it is. It's uh, Honestly, I think that even Two, two Towers, or maybe not Two Towers, but Return of the King, I think is the theatrical cut is better than the extended cut. I think that mm. there's a lot of stuff in Return of the King that is like, ah, I didn't really need that. Uh, and I like the... Uh, the uh, it's already. I'm not trying to say it's already a long movie. They're all already long movies, but I think that there are things, especially in uh, Fellowship of the Ring, where that extended cut really adds a lot to the story in the background. It's just a lot more fun lore that you get to digest. Um, Two Towers. It's just it's my favorite out of the three movies. So anything you add to it, I'm just gonna go yay. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's. For me, it was an. Uh, it was like, whenever I got the uh, director's cut uh, thing you sent, I was like, okay, so number one's Lauder. Now I got to look up. Have I seen any <laughs> other director's cuts out there? Because I know that's my number one. Yeah, no, this made my honorable mentions as well. I mean, it's it's the kind of trilogy, trying to the kind of experience that I just want to like sit back, block out the entire day, and just enjoy Peter Jackson's vision for 12, 13 hours, whatever it works out to. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is just. Beautiful, just gorgeous, front to back, that entire experience. It is astonishing. Right. Uh, it is an astonishing work of, of cinema, what he did with, with that 12 hours of, of And this is, I think, yeah. a good example, and it's not always the case, but a good example of like auteur theory and letting your director free reign mm-hmm. and just give, giving him the budget and the resources to do what he wants. And if that's a four-hour version of Return of the King, then so be it. Because that movie makes me weep every time. Yeah, It's crazy because if you think about... Peter Jackson before Lord of the Rings, he didn't prove himself really to be somebody that you would give, you know, that kind of is leniency. Good, but like, it's not that good. No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Fright Nights. And what's the uh, zombie, the insanely gory zombie movie that he did? It was, 
uh, I forget the name of it, but like, yeah, he did those movies before he did Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, you are giving this guy so much leniency whenever it comes to this franchise. I, and not, and not, and not only a lot of like money and resources, but the IP, this is J.R.R. Yeah. Tolkien's like baby. And they're like, yeah. here, you have carte blanche to make this work. And uh, they, they put a lot of trust in Peter Jackson and yeah. 14 Oscar nominations and yeah. however many wins. Yeah. Uh, they clearly um, made a good bet there. Well, Return of the King swept at the Oscars, if I remember correctly. I think it won like 11 <coughs> out of 14. It did really well. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think it was Titanic and Ben-Hur are the only others that have won at least 11. Yeah. Um, and Return of the King's the third on that list. I, uh, I I singled out the two towers if we had to, which I don't think we have to, um, as my favorite of the extended editions. I think it just does some character work in that movie that I think really benefits uh, the story. Um, Boromir stuff, right? There's some real Boromir stuff in that extended edition um, that, yeah. that really helps out. I, I genuinely don't remember the original version. I saw them on Christmas Eve the week they came out. What was this twenty years ago now, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen them since. Ever since the, the extended's available, that's always been the version I go to. I don't remember what I'm missing. Yeah. Well, and uh, for Two Towers specifically, you get a lot more of Boromir and his backstory with uh, what was going, or a uh, Faramir is who you're really getting. Uh, a Maybe more... that's who I'm thinking of. Well, Faramir is the younger brother. Boromir was, uh, right? Yeah, uh, the one who died in a return or a fellowship. Would mm-hmm. you see him in the extended edition of yeah. Two Towers? Yeah, I'm but, thinking of Faramir. Yeah. You also get a lot more of Theoden and uh, Aomer, who, who, you know, the writers, the Rohirrim. Right, right, You get a yeah. lot more of them and, like, how they got banished and stuff like that. And then you get, actually, you get a lot more understanding of the treants, like Treebeard talking about, you know, what's going on in the uh, uh, Fangorn Forest, you know? So. Mm-hmm. I know nice. way too much about Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm realizing as I'm able to <laughs> spat off everybody's name, I'm like, oh, I I'm know definitely everything. in due for a for a long rewatch one of these weekends. Uh, what do you Every got? A few at, years. I what do you got at your number one, Jonathan? Number one is a version of a film I saw recently. Uh, it's I think much maligned as a, a famous blockbuster bomb, but the Ulysses cut of the 1995 Kevin Costner epic Waterworld hmm. is such a good experience. At two hours and 15 minutes, the theatrical version is kind of clunky. It feels like the theatrical version of Justice League. Like, there's clearly world building they're removing, and I don't understand as much as I think I could. The three-hour version of the Ulysses cut, which only was released last year, uh, had been kicked around the internet in bootleg for a couple decades because it originated as a TV edit that aired on ABC after the movie came out a couple years, I think, in 1997. So the movie comes out in theaters in 95. They add in some deleted scenes for TV in 1997, but only in standard definition, 4x3 aspect, and some of the gorier and some of the nudity has been removed for TV edit. But some entrepreneurizing uh, uh, internet folks took kind of both versions together. They took the SD stuff, and they took the gore from the original, and they mashed them together, and they called it the Ulysses Cut, and that's been available as a bootleg for 20 years. Finally, Universal, in you know their infinite wisdom, decided let's let's actually finish this correctly, uh, and they released that on Blu-ray uh, like a year and a half ago, and it's phenomenal. It's so good. Like all the extended stuff they took out, a lot of great motivation to the character. We get more backstory. We get to see more great sweeping visual effects. We have an ending that is a bit more definitive. It gives uh, the Mariner a real human name at the end, um, and I think it's just one of those things where you get to see more 
of these characters that build them up in a way that you actually care about them now. <laughs> and you get to see more action. You get to see more of these scenes that's like, okay, cool. This is a really fun universe that I want to spend more time in. And the theatrical cut, I think, kind of does the, the experience a disservice. But I've always been a huge defender of Waterworld. And when I finally saw the full version, it's like, wow, well, this is such a better movie. I think with Waterworld, I think what a lot of people mistake is it was, yes, a giant box office flop. But that doesn't automatically translate to people hating the movie. Because yeah, you talk to true. a lot of people, and a lot of people like Waterworld. I like Waterworld. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, a goat film by any means. you got to check this version out. I don't know I that do it'll want to. bump. I do want to. I think, I think if you watch this and don't improve your score, um, then I, I'll revoke my critic card no, on the show here because it is genuinely like a much improved film yeah uh, i have no doubt the only thing that you said that it kind of gives me hesitation is that they name the mariner at the end and i'm like oh i just like that he was called the mariner you know As the mariner is a very cool name yeah it's kind of like why i like the man with no name trilogy is because yeah right? there's a there's a mystery level to it but i mean they named an entire baseball team after it so you know exactly he has yeah. to be had to be he good. has an entire baseball team uh yeah, and I think Dennis Hopper is hilarious in the movie, you know. You're like a turd that won't flush. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I need, uh, is it Ulysses cut? Ulysses, yeah. Okay, I'm going to look it up. As in, as in like the big operatic epic uh, yeah. from Homer. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I, I've been dying to do, not dying, obviously. If I'd been dying to do it, I'd have done it. Um, but I've yeah. been I've been excited to do a rewatch of Waterworld at some point because I remember thinking there was some promise there and, and having some fun with some of it. Um, I just haven't felt the need to, to revisit it, but I've been I've been wanting to, so. I'd recommend it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of just like balls-to-the-wall action movies from yeah. the 90s, and this is like a, a poster child for... Let's give the director $300 million and see what happens. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, I don't think you quite made that back, but um, you certainly had an idea. Uh, in honorable mention, I would also uh, mention the Apocalypse Now uh, cut is yeah. definitely one that a lot of people talk about. Well, I have not seen well, it. Well, which one, though? Because I've right. seen, um, I've seen uh, I think, three versions of Apocalypse Now, or maybe, maybe just two. The Redux is this long-winded version mm-hmm. that includes like a 30-minute detour to a French plantation. That version, I don't care for. I think it's really boring and long-winded, and I, I kind of disliked the movie mm-hmm. when I first saw it. I went back recently and rewatched the theatrical version and thought that was way, way better, near masterpiece. And I've heard there's a third there version is, that's yeah. even newer called The Final Cut right. that kind of combines the two into like a medium um, and I've heard that's sort of the definitive one to right. watch. But yeah. stay away from Redux. It is way too self-serving to be any good. There's apparently a Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, director's cut that I haven't seen. Um, but I, I wanted mean, to mention that one What could they add to well. it? That movie's already almost perfect. They I added, hear there's a, there's a big change in the ending, apparently. They put, I don't know what. They put gravy on the mashed potatoes. Um, they, is oh, the biggest change. Yeah. Um, it means something. It, yeah. there, if there's one thing Devil's Tower is missing, it's, 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 it's gravy. gravy. It's gravy. Yeah, yeah. It's, so much it's all gravy, gravy really. Uh, <laughs> did you guys have any other honorable mentions? Uh, uh, Blade Runner. I, I don't no, like yeah, Blade Runner, but that, yeah. everybody says the director's cut's better, so... Yeah, yeah Blade, Blade Runner doesn't make a lot of uh, changes. It removes the voiceover and tightens things up. And makes it a bit more mysterious instead of just spoon-feeding exposition to the audience. Um, it's not hugely different, but yeah, Blade Runner is a great film. And if you can make it better just slightly. Uh, and the other one is Heaven's Gate. 
Another uh, sort of famous example of like a box office bomb that bombed because you took a big, big vision and tried to cut it down to studio mm-hmm. requirements. The full four-hour version um, is, I think, paced a little too slowly, but I can't imagine telling an epic Western like Heaven's Gate in under two and a half hours, which apparently they did and nobody liked it. So I've only seen the, the full version, uh, but I really liked it. Uh, they're speaking of box office bombs. There's apparently an Ishtar director's cut uh, as well. Um, <laughs> is there really? There really, really is. Making a joke? No, no, no. I'm not <laughs> making a joke. I, I there there really is. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested in seeing that too. I or only not. know of Ishtar because Waterworld was um, sort of uh, jokingly referred to as Fishtar. Fishtar, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, Fishtar yeah. as a, as a, like a condescension. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you never seen Ishtar? No, I have no. not. Hmm. I don't know if I want to recommend it to you, yeah. but like it's, it's I'm in. It's <laughs> it's really interesting. I I had some laugh out loud moments in that movie. Um, this is you know you know that scene in Justice League where Batman attempts to recruit the Flash mm-hmm. and he just interrupts immediately. Says, yeah, that's that's me on any movie recommendation. <laughs> movie exists. I'm in. Yeah, get it on the watch list. I have not uh, seen uh, Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, but. Apparently, there's a director's cut that's great. Mm-hmm. My only thing is, uh, if he's not doing anything Monty Python related, I really wasn't a fan of much of what he did. Like uh, that movie he did with, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Christoph Waltz a couple years ago, The Zero Theorem or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I hated that I movie. Know that, that one. Uh, you're lucky. Don't don't see it. It's, it's, it's so <laughs> bad. But uh, All right. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move into our buried treasure. Uh, I'll kick us off on this. I already mentioned I watched Wait, a, a four-hour movie. Did you give your Did you give your number one? It was Lord of the Rings: Two Towers. Um, oh, it was. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mentioned I'm I'm doing a long uh, movie as well for this uh, for my buried treasure. It is 1956. Uh, it's the movie Giant. Uh, finally got around to seeing Giant. Um, this is an epic. Uh, and that is, it is, it is the definition of the word sprawling, um, on all its positive and negative connotations. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm really glad I watched it. Uh, it did is, you, did I, I watched it, uh, let me check here, um, a few years back four now, mm-hmm. and I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember loving it. Did that's you? kind of where I'm at. That's kind of where I'm at. Um, I, I think it is just for its scope alone, uh, worthy of putting in, you know, great movie conversation, uh, just because of everything it does. The James Dean part of it also puts it in that conversation because it was his final released film. It was released. Uh, it's always difficult for me to say this word. Posthumous. 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 Posthumously. Thank you. Posthumously. Yeah, you just skip the middle five letters. Posthumous. <laughs> it was released pos- posthumously. Um, and, uh, as, as I think rebel with the out of cause was as well. I think the only movie he saw released, uh, that he played a large role in was his first one, um, East of Eden, Eden. but, uh, but anyhow, he does something in this movie that's pretty incredible. He, he does the Orson Welles, right? Where he's 24 years old in plays age range from 20 years old to 60 years old, uh, through the whole thing. And does it convincingly. And Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor, they also go through a huge aging process through this movie because it really does tell the story of this Texas uh, family uh, who goes from ranching to oil um, uh, oil barons, basically, 
in Texas for over the course of many, many years. And uh, baby Dennis Hopper is in this movie. 20-year-old Dennis Hopper is uh, in Giant and uh, was interesting to see pop up. But I just... I, I it was, if nothing else, really interesting to see these performances, to see them pull pull it off. I don't know that you can do this anymore. I, like uh, Tom Holland kind of tried to do this with Cherry that just came out. I don't know if either of you got a chance to see Cherry. Not yet. Um, but he's he's in some way he's the same age. So James Dean was Tom Holland's age right now when when he um, made Giant. Young. Um, yeah. So very very young. And in Tom Holland, they try to age him up, you know, for a lot of the scene. And I just, you just don't buy it. And I don't know if it's just because resolution has gotten so much greater or they're not using practical tricks to hide it as much. Because it's not like James Dean is just, you know, hidden behind sunglasses in a veil the entire movie or something. It's, you know, it's, he's right there. But, uh, but it's, for some reason, more believable. Um, and same with Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, right? There's there's something about it that just you believe th- that's a 50 or 60 year old man um, when it's really 25 year old Orson Welles, you know. So I don't know why they could do that back then, but it's it's much harder to do now. I think uh, DiCaprio kind of did a little bit of this, although he was a little bit older um, with the bi- uh, the biopic that he did where he got aged up. Aviator. Um, Aviator. Aviator. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah Aviator. So yeah, it's but it just it just doesn't seem to to work as well these days. Anyhow, it's it's definitely epic. It's definitely long, um, but I'm glad I watched it, and I certainly get the um, the love behind it. It's also very the movie is is very uh, was very surprising to me how socially conscious the movie was deliberately being. Uh, I noticed that a lot when I go back and I watch old movies, especially from the 60s, mm-hmm. uh, how forward-thinking and progressive a lot of the values are. And it's like, oh, yeah, we have been racist forever, but we've also been pretty progressive, at least Hollywood, for a long time, too. Yeah, there is... And that's that's refreshing to think, because when you think back to the, the rosy 50s, you kind of have this, at least today, this tainted perspective that everyone was kind of a closeted bigot. But uh, that's not the case. Uh, just some of America. and <laughs> They still are today, but uh, it's interesting. I'm like, oh my god, this is actually this is like a really progressive message for a 65 year old film. But I th- I yeah. think a lot of the racial biases were it, it was uh, back then. It wasn't that they were closeted; it was that they were uncloseted. I think that yeah, is yeah, that, that's, that that's is probably... a lot of the difference. Is there was a real comfort with racial biases? It wasn't or a racism. I should just say racism. Um, but this but this movie. Um, Really, really speaks to the racial aspect of things in a way I wasn't expecting. The final shot of this movie—spoilers for a you know seventy-year-old movie or sixty-five-year-old movie—the <clears throat> final shot of this movie is a um, a pan from a white, blue-eyed baby boy to a Hispanic baby boy, and that's what it leaves you with as an audience to go, you know, to to really confront you with. Your feelings of is this different? Because so much of the movie has to do with uh, Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor's growth through their you know evolution from what they believe about uh, you know uh, racial things as well as feminist things. There's some feminism here too uh, that's really interesting with the Elizabeth Taylor character. Um, but it's very clear by that last shot. This is what they want you to think about. They it, it is definitely saying confront your racial thinking. And what, you know, does a white boy, baby boy with blue eyes, does that create different feelings in you than um, a different race child? And I don't know. I just I wasn't ready for that. I was really surprised by how directly 
uh, socially conscious this movie was. So, yeah. So anyhow, uh, Giant is the name of the movie. Um, and uh, I guess I, cool. I like that like three plus hour films has just been the theme today. <laughs> right. Lord yeah. of the Rings and Waterworld and Justice League. It's just like, bring it. Yeah. Carve out your night, folks. We got some recommendations for you. I like uh, what uh, somebody in the chat said. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was like Drew saying that this feels like a director's cut because this is a particularly long Sif Pop episode. <laughs> it's the director's cut. No, this is cut, the original right? cut. This is the original cut. We'll get the mm. fill cut somewhere down the. Down I've the never line. been on an episode shorter <laughs> than like a hundred minutes, so this is normal for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe you should th- maybe you should take that. Maybe what, what does that say about having you on, John? You know, there's just so much more to. To talk about I, when you're I here am, with us. I am, uh, I ramble. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I meant. That was not the intended meaning. A uh, Giant, man. Giant is on HBO Max, uh, if you want to check it All out. Right. Uh, Andrew, what do you got for your buried treasure? Uh, I am going to go with a documentary. Uh, it's fascinating. I think it's crazy because this, the movie that this mo- uh, documentary is about is not good. It's a bad movie. But <laughs> the making of the movie is what's fascinating. It's called Roar, the most dangerous movie ever made. <clears throat> Have you guys? Is this ha- the movie with the um? This is the movie with the lions that um uh what's his name did in the house in Africa? Yeah. Uh. Well, it initially like it was inspired in Africa, but it was uh, Noel Marshall who uh, actually took a trip with his wife, who we all know as and, Tip- his, and his kids. His actual family was yeah, in this. Tippy Hedren. I watched this a year ago. It's absolutely bananas. It's, it's insane. He shot it's- a movie where actually there's this movie. There's yeah. a shot in the movie where he gets attacked and mauled by a lion. And every like, sing- leave it in the print. It's fine. Every single day there was a mauling of one of the Wild. crew or cast members. Uh, all right, I got to watch this documentary because yeah. my wife and I watched this movie a year ago, and we're like, how did this? This is this is insane. Yeah. People are being mauled on camera and they're like, okay, keep it going. Yeah. It's, there's not there's not really a story. It's just no. like what if we well, just got a bunch of big cats and put a camera in the same house? Yeah. A hundred and fifty lions, tigers, jaguars, wow. leopards, cheetahs, and just other big cats are in this movie. Wow. Yeah. Uh it's it's fascinating. Tippy Hedron, who we all know from Hitchcock's The Bird. Uh, yep, that's yep. Uh, Noel Marshall's wife, and then their daughter Melanie Griffith, who we all know, uh, is uh, in this movie as well. Yeah, he cast his family to be in this movie, where every single day somebody would get bitten, clawed, and they had a, a wing in the local hospital wow. that was dedicated <laughs> to cast and crew that were working on this film because they knew. Once a day, somebody at least was going to get, you know, you know, uh, attacked. And actually, I forget the director's name, but he was the director of the movie Twister. Uh, I forget his name. He was from Holland. Jean de Bont? Yeah. He was the... That's right. He he, did Speed, too. Yeah. He was the the DP DP, on this movie. Yeah. Uh, He got his face uh, almost bitten off. Uh, like if like uh, they show like scars like go around. I would definitely I would definitely recommend the movie proper, because um, that's a trip and it's a great movie to like riff with friends. Just get drunk and watch this movie because it's wild. I think and like yeah. I I remember joking to my wife like it's a miracle that we got the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy because it's Don uh, what's her name um, Dakota Johnson almost didn't exist. Because half of her lineage is in this movie, and they almost got killed. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's one of those. Uh, yeah, you should see the original movie first because, like I said, it's not a good movie, but it makes you think: How did they get it's away? Fascinating. With, how did they get away with making this movie? Uh, 
it then, was made outside of the legal system. Oh yeah, uh, it, yeah. They actually had to because it was filmed in California, and they're like, uh, you can't own big cats uh, for you know, uh, it's illegal to own big cats in California. So they're like, oh no no no, this isn't a, a house. This is this is a sanctuary for you know big cats. And uh, they just happen to be filming a movie on this sanctuary. Uh, Most of the film is improvised. They just like, let's just roll let's and see, see with what, what happens. Let's see what the cats do. Yeah, let's see with what happens. And then there's like a Tippy Hedron, like almost had to have her leg amputated because she got like impaled by an elephant's tusk or something like that. It's, it's insane. Like the scene where uh, in the movie where Tippy Hedron, like the elephant lifts her up like onto its head is actually shot in reverse because it, she was on its head, but she got bucked off and landed on its tusk. So they just reversed the shots oh, no. where it looked like it was uh, putting her up on its head. It's an insane movie, but you should watch it solely to go into this documentary to understand what happened. It's crazy. I'm 100% going to seek this out this week. It's on a uh, discovery channel. That's where I watched it. Okay. And uh, I'm realizing now that for, I think, the last three weeks, my buried treasure has been lion-themed. Because <laughs> I did I did the Ghost of Savo, yeah, the, the, the Man-Eaters of Savo, the Ghost in the Darkness story. And then I think before that, we were talking about Lion King, and then we were talking about something else. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm on a lion kick right now, and I didn't even realize it. So, yep, that's my buried treasure. Roar, the most dangerous think, movie ever made. I think you're being I dishonest. Like in fact, I would say you're lying. lying. All right, Jonathan, what is your uh, buried treasure for this Terrible. week? Terrible. Um, uh, my, my, I had to really think long and hard about this because I only watch movies. Um, and I feel like everything I've watched recently, we've already talked about or recommended. Uh, so I went into podcasts for this. I had to do a couple commutes to work recently for the first time in months. Um, and I got back into podcasts. And um, I checked out one that my friend produced called Knowing Andy Kaufman. And this is an eight-part series that does a deep dive into figuring out who he really was. And if you've ever seen or enjoyed the Jim Carrey movie from 1999, you have sort of a, a, a bird's-eye perspective on kind of who he was, the bigger macro parts. Mm -hmm. um, but this podcast has original interviews with Andy's sister, his brother, his manager, his girlfriend, his biological daughter that never met him. And the perspectives from these people around him is so fascinating um if you've ever been intrigued by his sort of anti-brand of comedy that he would deliberately bomb on stage just to get a reaction out of people it's just like he was ahead of his time in some ways and just totally weird and and bonkers in other ways um but if you're into like short form uh, documentary podcasts uh this is a pretty quick listen 30 minute episodes only eight of them you can kind of binge it out and in my case a, a whole week of commuting um and it's really interesting to kind of go back into the archives and hear clips from Andy's past before he was really famous, home recordings from when he was just performing with his baby sister in like their backyard doing on fake magic shows, all the way up to his more controversial appearances on live TV. Uh, and it's super fascinating stuff. Um, and the producer of the show is a good friend of mine. So I was nice. like, yeah, I'll check out your stuff. And then I was like genuinely like, dude, this is really good. <laughs> you should do more podcasts. You're great at this. That sounds really um, yeah, interesting. Knowing Andy Kaufman. It is. And I think it's the kind of really good, like, ancillary, behind-the-scenes film content that I was kind of jonesing for this week. Well, if you want further uh, ancillary 
behind the scenes content, specifically about Andy Kaufman. I don't know if you ever got a chance to see the documentary uh, about uh, Jim Carrey's making the the Kaufman movie. No, but I think I will because I only watched that. I, I listened to the podcast first and finally watched Man on the Moon for the first time just a couple nights ago. He's incredible, isn't he? Um, yeah. He's, oh yeah, Jim Carrey. It's insane. I've always, it's insane. I've, he's he's been so good for so long. So if the documentary you want more, changes everything about. What you I will check that, that out too. Yeah, it's so incredible. It's uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. Uh, actually, the full title of the movie is Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton, um, is the full name <laughs> of the documentary. Uh, it is available on Netflix. Um, right So on. you can fire that up uh, if you want. I, I would love to. Yeah, no, the podcast is really fascinating to hear what his closest friends and relatives really thought. And there was one anecdote that, that I remember that him and, his, and him and his family would go to Coney Island when they were kids, and they would deliberately start fights in public. Just when they're when this is like when he's like eight or nine, he's like his early early beginnings of this anti comedy goes way back to his childhood. He would deliberately start fights with his brother just to see if they could get a crowd. Like let's if we get if we get into a shouting match right now, let's see if people start watching us. Then you can start throwing stuff at me. I'll start throwing stuff at you. And his brother is now sort of waxing poetic about this forty five years removed from when he originally did it. Because uh, all of his relatives, or at least not his parents, but his, his brothers and sisters are all still alive. And hearing them talk about these early beginnings where they would do, like, improv, uh, like, flash mob comedy mm-hmm. on, like, the boardwalk of Coney Island just because Andy was like, wouldn't it be fun? Yeah. And it's like, what a weird mind this guy had. I had a friend. And the fact that he actually made it famous when, like, by all accounts, he should not have been given any airtime like he's 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 a very wild unpredictable guy but he made it work it's fun. in a system that doesn't know what to do with him it's 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 a really interesting feeling uh to do that and to to bring that to the real world i had a friend in college who we would every once in a while uh if we were walking to classes or whatever and there were people around we'd look at each other and say want to do a scene and we would That's do, great. and then one of us would shout something like, but did you think you had permission to be in my, and we just, you know, start a fight about something and we just, just go, improvise go it. And yeah. just improv it. And just, That's and just wonderful. kind of be aware of the reactions around you and people kind of stopping and listening and really sell it, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, tr- it's kind of trolly. There's a little bit of trolling to it. Oh, hundred percent. Andy you know, Kaufman's like the original troll. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the best way. Yeah. So. Anyhow, yeah, I think that that part of me is in there somewhere that really enjoys that because we definitely used to do that kind of stuff. So that's great. Uh, well, we did it, guys. It took Woo! us over two hours, but we we made it. We made it happen. Mm-hmm. We did a podcast. Um, the and, dicer uh, cut. And he'll be in, no. I think it'll be the fill cut. Release the, the fill, fill cut. cut. Uh, so, cut. Someday, someday, if you request it, if you bully enough people on Twitter. Uh, there'll be a four-hour version <laughs> of of this podcast. Uh, Where we actually so- have to get. You, me, and John back together to cr- to record two more Most hours of content. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What what is the longest episode in, in this in is it? Pops? No, I think this is it. Well, no, I oh, mean technically no. the Sposkers. The Sposkers is always going to be the longest because it's a live watch of the the Oscar. Uh, Excluding those, I feel like when we did the Sifties a few months ago, that was I feel like we also went over two. two no, ten. we've had mm. two and a half. We've had two and a half hour episodes before. Mm. I, yeah. yeah, that's not maybe, even maybe including just... like a spoiler cast or anything. I'm talking a standalone. Speaking of which, let's get into that next. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. It'll be the next item on your feed. Scroll up to click it.
Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Sif Pop is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about other shows on the network at studiodna.media or by searching Studio DNA in your podcast player. Huge thanks to Andrew for hanging out again today. Thank you, buddy. Huge thanks to producer Phil for producing the audio and video show. Thank you, Phil. Thanks to Drew for the graphics, helping out with the graphics for the video show. Big clap. And thank you to Jonathan Paula for coming by once again this month and hanging out with us. Jonathan, uh, you need to check out his Letterboxd. Uh, Really, really great stuff there. Anywhere else you want to send people, Jonathan, this time? Uh, I might as well promote my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash jogwheel, J-O-G-W-H-E-E-L. I hope to be returning to uh, the small screen soon. So I can review all the Oscar picks and may- maybe do something with, with the DCEU. I- I've written reviews on almost all of the films. One of these days I'll kind of videotape my reactions and put together a big big video on the Jug Wheel channel. Nice. So yeah, check me out on YouTube. I haven't been active there in a while, but uh, I am planning my comeback. Nice. Uh, so yeah, check him out on YouTube at Jogwheel, J-O-G-W-H-E-E-L, or uh, at Letterboxd uh, as well. Uh, big thanks to our Sif Pop members for giving monthly to make Sif Pop a real thing. Support starts at 3 bucks a month. You get access to all the bonus episodes. By the way, the bonus episode this week for our members was us discussing the Oscar nominations. So if you want to hear our thoughts on all the Oscar noms uh, and you're a member, you can go do that now. That's at patreon.com slash siftpop. Uh, you can check out all the information there, too. Lots of ways to connect with the podcast. You can comment, rate, leave a review uh, at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also email us, feedback at siftpop.com. And finally, if you're having a good time, your movie-loving friends will probably like the show, too. So make sure you let them know about it. And that listening is much easier than recruiting teammates when you're a man who broods in a cave. Uh, we <laughs> will be back next week with Godzilla versus Kong. And The Father. Uh, anytime there's a Godzilla movie. <laughs> Those movies could not be further apart. <laughs> you're going to want to hear what Andrew has to say about a Godzilla movie. Uh, so yep. we'll be back next week with that, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.